It's a sled. He's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vedas, his father. They're allergic to water. She's his sister and her daughter. You watched it wrong. Well, I didn't watch it wrong. You watched it wrong. You. I didn't watch it wrong. You watched it wrong. I gotta do this. Hey everyone, how you doing? This is Wade. And this is Siggy. And this is You Watched It Wrong. Hey, that was nice. Podcast where we pick a movie and we talk about it to death until it is dead. Well, today we're doing a very special episode because we're not just doing one movie. Heck, we're not even just doing two movies. We're doing, we have uh, taken four movies and teamed them up and strapped them to a chariot and we're going to ride them through this whole episode. What movies are we talking to? We are referring to The Ben's Her. Or The Ben Hers. Or The, the Ben Folds Hers. The Ben Her Folds. The Ben Her Four. There you go. Now, this may come as quite as a shock to our listeners because it was a shock to me. There are four? Actually, there's more than four. Well, let's, let's round them down. Okay. What are the four we're going to be discussing today? Four theatrical releases. Um, they Okay. Uh, listing them off, they are Ben Her, Ben Her, mm-hmm. Ben Her, and Ben Her. And uh, I, oh, I, I forgot to note this down. I believe three of those are hyphenated and one is not, if I'm correct. Um, and those are from the years 1907, 1925, 1959, and 2016. So this is a movie that Hollywood likes to come back to a lot. Apparently. From, yes. its, from its inception to current, to last year. Yeah. It's, um, well, it's a, it's a story that has a very interesting history and one I didn't know about uh, until um, starting to do research for this episode because mm-hmm. I had... To, to say how I watched it, if I can go ahead and say how I watched it, mm-hmm. was um, Catherine, my lovely bride, was uh, out of town, and I had the three boys to myself, and I said, okay, let's let's have a movie day. It was like on a Sunday. So like, we're going to be lazy. We're just going to sit around and watch a movie. So I dug through the old DVD box, and I uh, had in mind to show them Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, which I have the Criterion version for somewhere from a decade and a half ago or something like that. I could not find that disc, but I found Ben-Hur. I'm like, oh, I'll show him Ben-Hur. I've got him as a captive audience now because I've already told him <laughs> we're watching a movie. <laughs> so I popped in uh, Ben-Hur and we ended up watching w- it over three. This is a 1959, uh, um, which I had seen at least twice before. Um, really? So this was my third, maybe my fourth time seeing it. Um, but my, uh, watch it with the boys. We ended up watching it over three days cause I'd forgotten just how long it is. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they loved it. I was really surprised by just how much they, they took to it. So, uh, so I, I just texted, uh, you Wade, just texted you says, Oh, watching Ben-Hur with the boys. And then I forget which of us, uh, said, Oh, we should do that for an episode. <laughs> some, at some point after that. Days later, um, it was in the back of my mind that there was going to be another remake of Ben Hur, <laughs> but I I didn't realize that it had already come out and it was a year ago. Well, yeah, it just kind of came and went. Didn't really make an impact not, of any uh, yeah. on the consciousness at all, really. Not an auspicious uh, 
uh, sign right. for its prospects. So um, I ended up feeling a little embarrassed that we had agreed to do an episode on uh, something that is uh, not especially relevant or timely. A nearly 60-year-old movie. Well, that would have been fine, yeah. but the fact that they just did the remake, but it was a year ago, and we weren't even going to talk about that, <laughs> made, made me made me feel like made me feel like this was stupid. Well, yeah, I remember because I I agree. You you texted me and said, "I watch it with the boys." Maybe if you want to do this for a nap, and I said, "Well, you know, I'd never thought about it. I'd never seen Ben Hur," and so I went, "You know, I'm going to say yes because." Uh, I feel like every other one we've done has been my suggestion or or just happenstance that, you know, it was going to work out. So I was like, I can't dominate this the whole time. Of course. Yes, let's do that one. And then I, I, then I was watching, in the middle of watching it, I had gone through a cycle of, oh, this isn't going to be a good idea too. This is going to be a great idea. And then you texted and said, maybe we shouldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, we're doing this now. <laughs> And here then, we are doing it. And here we it's are doing be it. Good. It's going to be good. We're going to spend about an hour talking about how we decided to do this episode, <laughs> rather than. So, <laughs> so I was aware that there had was had been an earlier silent version mm-hmm. of this film, um, and not only a silent version, but uh, one that was considered a classic in its own right. Was was considered hmm. at the time to be one of the the best um, of the silent era. So this is always my go-to example of. When people say, "Oh, another remake," I'm like, "Ah, oh. it's like this and uh, uh, the Wizard of Oz were always my go-to examples of." You say you hate remakes, but if you love Ben Hur or the Wizard of Oz <laughs> with they, Judy Garland, right. then you can't say you hate remakes right. because those are both remakes of, uh, well, in the case of Wizard of Oz, a, a, a turkey. Uh, the first version was really bad, um, by Which, all accounts. I haven't, I haven't seen it. And that um, would very well take to my rule of cinema, which is if you're going to do a remake, do a remake of a movie that had promise but didn't work the first time. <clears throat> but the silent Ben-Hur, 1925, was considered a classic, was considered mm-hmm. uh, a, one of the great achievements. And in fact, it, its chariot race was considered one of the great achievements of the silent era. Mm. Um, and, the, and the only other thing I knew about the, the silent version was um, a tremendous number of horses were killed in the production of the chariot race in the silent version of Ben Hur. Tremendous, a tremendous, Trem- a tremendous. Um, there's no other word to describe it. Worse than, than luck. There's not even a numeral you can assign to the to that amount of dead horses. Um, so, uh, but what I didn't know, uh, and I guess this is what both remakes of Wizard of Oz and Ben-Hur have in common is that they're also adaptations of novels. Now, obviously, Mm -hmm. I knew The Wizard of Oz. I had no idea until researching for this episode that there was a novel, Mm -hmm. Ben-Hur, the novel, the the story of the Christ. Did you know that? Have you ever heard of this as a novel? I didn't know it before, but I was doing research too, and I found out that it would, yeah, and and not only that, well, it was Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, written by someone who was basically a proclaimed atheist, and it's the first work of fiction to be blessed by the Pope. <laughs> so does that mean it can? It's, the book will go to heaven? What does that mean to be... <laughs> um, let me what does that it. mean for a, for a piece of fiction to receive a blessing? It's, like, it's, it's like it's, 
it's like an accommodation. I mean, like it'll like, help the novel sleep easier at night. It's like a nothing. It's, else. it's like a papal jacket quote. It's, yeah, right. So the novel, uh, 1880, was published, written by General Lew Wallace, who before he ever started writing fiction, or at least was published writing fiction, um, was a Union general in the American Civil War, had some notoriety as a participant in the Battle of Shiloh, which is one of the, the big battles that doesn't doesn't get the press of the Gettysburgs or the Antietams, but uh, was one of the huge uh, casualty machines. <laughs> it, was a, it was a regular casualty machine, um, <laughs> especially for the Union side. And uh, uh, old General Lew Wallace uh, showed up late with his troops, so he uh, had a little bit of infamy. Uh, it so happens that a direct ancestor of mine, a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, I just talked to my mom yesterday to make sure I got the number of greats right, <laughs> um, uh, uh, was in the Battle of Shiloh, got on the Union side, uh, got shot in the head, and was declared dead um, on, the, on the rolls, but actually was uh, severely wounded but lived, with um, a, a with brain damage, served out the rest of the war uh, in a hard labor camp, and then wandered the countryside as a, a derelict who had lost his memory for decades. Wow! And um, shows up and is just wandering the countryside. Shows up in his own hometown, wandering around, and is recognized by his family. And says, "It's you." William, you're alive. And like, they took him a while before he remembered who he was. They had to like show him around, introduce him to his wife, <laughs> had to take him to like the schoolhouse and stuff. And then the, the memory slowly comes back to him and says, Oh yeah. So he's, you know, he's like a wreck of a person. So he, I guess, tries to put his life back together. They try to uh, collect his soldier's pension since he's poor, he's, he's penniless, um, gets sued by the federal government for trying to impersonate himself or trying to impersonate a, a dead soldier uh, and defraud the government out of this pension and loses the case and uh, spends the rest of his life in hard, hard serving hard labor in uh, a federal prison. Oh, my gosh. Well, good night. So, we don't need to talk about another story because so, that well, was. So, uh, so. Jeez. You know, oh my God. You could, uh, you could hold General Lou Wallace uh, partly responsible for that whole uh, story by showing up late to the to the battle and maybe, uh, maybe not being there to support uh, old Pop Ops uh, uh, <laughs> unit, although probably the Confederate troops who were actually shooting at him are more responsible. They're a heavier burden, but uh, anyway. So I thought that was an interesting, interesting connection. Uh, wow! I'm surprised I, to see that. Wow, I'm kind of speechless. So this uh, Ben Hur. So uh, so he goes on. Uh, Lou Wallace goes on uh, um, after his military career is over, um, and as you say, he was uh, not particularly religious, but he's on a long train ride and meets a guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and gets in this long debate about theology 
And this other guy is a proclaimed agnostic. And uh, as Lou Wallace would write later, he was so he found the conversation so interesting, but he was embarrassed that he couldn't really contribute to it because he'd never really thought about this stuff before. Hmm. So he uh, determined to study the study scripture uh, just to learn more about it. And particularly the uh, the Gospels uh, intrigued him. And he had dabbled in fiction before, I guess, but had never been published or at least had never written a novel and he started writing decided to start writing the um the story of jesus and so the 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 first part of the novel he wrote was um the uh the the three magi finding jesus in the manger and he was going to just kind of write the story of christ but then he realized oh wait i can't write jesus as a character in uh, as the hero of a piece of fiction like that people won't accept that it'll be that'll be a, a problem. So then he had the idea of introducing a, uh, a new character whose life would kind of intertwine with the story of Jesus. And that became the story of Ben-Hur. And, uh, and this novel, which you and I had never heard about until this year, uh, was the best-selling <laughs> American novel for decades. Yeah. Surpassed Uncle uh, Tom's Cabin, according to surpassed Uncle Tom's Cabin, Wikipedia. and uh, was the best selling until Gone with the Wind. So that's mm. quite a long time to to go, and uh, it was the second best selling book, uh, the second best selling book in America after the Bible itself. Um, and when they started keeping circulation records in public libraries, it was the most checked out book in public libraries. So had quite a history. <clears throat> had a, quite a history as a, a stage production too. So they, they did this, uh, <laughs> be, it has a history of large ornate expensive productions starting on the stage in both New York and London. Um, they put on stage productions where they, for the chariot race, had live horses on the stage running on a conveyor belt towards the audience. This sounds, <laughs> sounds terrifying. You would have live horses running on a conveyor belt at the audience, and the conveyor belt would power a rotating backdrop to make it look like they were running through the the, the circus. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and it was incredibly expensive production, but it was a, a huge success and ran for like 25 years. Well, people do like seeing horses run directly at them. No, I don't know if they did the horse thing for all 25 oh. years, but it's, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't understand uh, that much of it. Ben Hur, turn off the dark. <laughs> That's right. Except it, it must have made money because it went for a long time. Right. Um, and so it was still a successful play when they made the first silent version in uh, 1907, uh, which I've seen and is uh, viewable on the Internet Archive. It's uh, 15 minutes long, and uh, it predates continuity editing, as we know it, <laughs> uh, as invented by D.W. Griffith, and is pretty much unwatchable. It's, it's um, you know, it's a they set up a camera, got a bunch of people to stand about 50 yards away from it, <laughs> And just kind of wave their arms. It's a lot of scenes of just like 50 people 
waving their arms, gesticulating. And you can't tell, you know, there's a title card that tells you what scene of the book it is. And then you see just a bunch of people standing and they're wearing the costumes and there's really nothing happening. Um, it, it's impossible to imagine getting anything out of it if you haven't read the book and say, oh, yeah, look, it's it's like illustrations from a book except worse and moving. <laughs> Hey, but those trees behind them are exactly as I pictured them. Yeah. Um, and so they do the chariot race in this in this version, and it's literally the camera set up like on a corner of the track. You see the race start, and the horses run off, and there's no cuts, and you wait for the horses <laughs> to complete a lap and come back around. And until then, you're just watching. A static shot of a crowd of people watch the race and cheer. <laughs> and then, like, 30 seconds later, two teams of chariots, and they're all the same color horses, so you don't even know who's who or who's winning. Like, there's no – just see some horses run by, and you watch the crowd, and the horses run by again. So the horse race scene from My Fair Lady is actually more exciting as a horse race than, than Ben-Hur 1907. Every other horse race scene <laughs> is better than the one from the 1907 Ben Hur. There's really, um, yeah, take it from me. There's really no reason to watch the uh, the 1907 version. Um, I did uh, I did take note of the fact that to um, to capitalize on the publicity for the film. Which, of course, made money because people were just going to see anything. <laughs> like, look, moving pictures. Um, uh, uh, there was published a lavishly designed and illustrated book, The Chariot Race from Ben-Hur, which was just took that chapter from the novel. Um, but it did feature color illustrations by a Sigismund Ivanowski. Oh. Sigismund. Good name. Good name. Good name in the illustrator. Okay. So that gets us to the 1925 version, um, which I think I won't go into detail here except to maybe note when we're talking about the other versions where there's uh, differences. It mostly holds pretty close to the 1959 hmm. version, which makes me think that they're both pretty faithful adaptations of the novel. Um, there are some differences, though. Um, most notably, the uh, um, the casting, um, the guy playing uh, Ben-Hur is a, a short little Mexican actor. I, only, I don't say that to be disparaging. I just mean he's short. He's a little guy. He's not, uh, he's not a Charlton Heston... Um, kind of statuesque, tall, lanky, muscular guy. He just uh, kind of little round-shouldered, um, you know, almost looks like a... He was a he was a, a romantic leading man. He was kind of an Errol Flynn or a Valentino type, but um, apparently... Uh, what was his name? Got it right down here. Romano. Uh, I don't. I can't find it in my notes. Anyway, it's he's surprising to to see because he's but he's got like, he's got fire in his belly. He's a little little sparkle of a guy. But it turns out the the actor was um, 
Mexican, which is, I thought, a little ironic because uh, uh, in our college days, I think we used to make fun of Charlton Heston for playing a Mexican in A Touch of Evil. So yeah. here, the one of the, one of the few impressions I did was an impression of Charlton Heston from Touch of Evil, playing the 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 Mexican. Uh, uh, go ahead, just go ahead, do it. Just, I'm sorry, Sally. I've got to go now. Do you remember uh, Aaron Aaron Odlin's uh, impression was, I'm Mexican, can't you tell? <laughs> I mean, not that he really had to put, you know, big arrows on it or anything, but he didn't have to indicate it all the time, but it, it was strange. Uh, and then the dude who plays um, uh, Masala is like a big, hunky, muscular... Like total, uh, oh, what's his name? He was a big deal too. He was a big, he was a big movie star in his own right. So it appears uh, that Ramon, uh, Ramon Navarro was Ramon been Navarro. Her. That's it. Thank you. And Fran- Thank you. Francis X Bushman. Yes, and Francis X Bushman is pretty awesome. He's a pretty awesome masala. He's fun to mm. watch. Um, and he's big. He's like he looks twice as big as. Uh, as Ben Hur, like he's a he's a mm-hmm. he's an intimidating physical presence, and so the fact that Ben Hur is you know stands up to him is pretty cool. Mm. It's, they make a nice uh, dynamic. Um, you know, it's like pure through pure will that that Ben Hur uh, prevails against him. Mm. Anyway, that's probably enough about uh, about that, and we should get on to the the 1959, the famous, the famous 11. Academy Award winning most uh, most Oscars for a long time until Titanic tied it. And then mm-hmm. did someone else did uh, La La Land got the they tied it nominations. They didn't yeah. uh, it uh, famously didn't win uh, the best picture. But um, yeah, so what did you think of the 1959? Had you seen it? You said you'd never seen it before. So I, I, I kind of grew up with it. So I, yeah. I already I I love it in a way where I would have trouble uh, having critical distance from it. Ah, okay. um, so I'm I'm really curious on on your take. Well, I, a lot of it will be from ignorance, uh, so you'll have to. Well, you won't have to excuse me. You can condemn me for ignorance. But no, I <laughs> I, I had, I'd actually never seen Ben Hur before. Uh, I knew obviously knew of it. Um, I obviously had seen clips from the chariot race that they would put in every Oscar reel and film historian thing but you know not anything else from the movie so and here's the and i i too watched it i think over the course of three days and here i will say i definitely am the one who watched it wrong because i watched it on a computer i watched it on my cell phone i watched it on a tv and i watched it on another computer and i, I, I broke it up into like four because i was like i'm not gonna it was i was i'm not gonna make this and um, the rental period for on Amazon was only 24 hours as opposed to 48 hours. Oh, no, wait. So I guess I didn't watch it over a couple of years. It's been so long. But I watched it like in several different settings very poorly. Um, but here's my ignorance. I did not know it was a religious epic. Ah, uh, yeah. So when it said A Tale from the Christ, I was like, what? And I literally had to think to myself, was Ben Hur a person in the Bible? <laughs> like I didn't know, so that's when I, w- I had to go look up and 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 look. I was like, is he like Simon of Cyrene, or, or is he like one of those guys? 
I don't. I didn't know. So yeah. So I, I I figured it was just one of the straight historical epics. But from what I understand, in conference with one of my film historian friends, uh, was basically saying you know about you know they used to do religious epics. You know they were the big money makers in Hollywood for in the, especially in the fifties, like and, Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments, and, and greatest story ever told. Right, they were huge, and then as audiences changed in the sixties came about, then they were they they were falling out of fashion, and the 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 they still made them, but they didn't make them as those big epics. They couldn't spend a whole lot of money on them, so they changed the what the what, what the they put all the money into was the historical epics and, and kind of went away from the uh, biblical epic. And now after we're seeing a resurgence of this, you know, after Passion of the Christ, everyone gets into that, you know, get, gets into that domestic, you know, they always kind of did better in Europe. Which they, did. Well, they do a uh, uh, biblical epics did better, do better in Europe now, which is interesting because Europe in my, that could be wrong about this, but my estimation about how, Europe views religion is more historical. Like they're not, they, I, at least a few years ago anyway, it was kind of more like, yeah, we don't, it doesn't feel like so tied into their fabric of their government and their being, but they just recognize it as being something as part of the historical past. Now I could be completely mm. off about that, but I find it interesting that the biblical epics do better there than they do here, where you've got a section of the population that are, very fervently uh, pro theocracy. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, even 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 if they weren't pro theocracy, just the whole you know Bible Belt evangelical, yeah. you know the the Kirk Cameron, Tyler Perry, right? Yeah, left behind the the that fan base mm -hmm. is got they got their whole cottage industry of uh, right, but it's, know, but it's films that cater to them right but as far as as hollywood epics go i guess those tend to be cheap cheaply right. made movies exactly they? yeah they are and so basically after passion of the christ hollywood tried with like kingdom a lot of ridley scott movies kingdom of heaven the much maligned gods of egypt kingdom of heaven that's the uh, we were trying to yeah. after watching the 2016 ben-hur with uh, morgan freeman as uh <laughs> We were, we were trying to remember what was the movie where he played an Arab uh, that wasn't Robin Hood. <laughs> as soon as uh, I, I'll get to that later, but you, you he hit, was you, a Moor in Robin Hood. You hit, I guess you hit a part of that. Um, but yeah, like uh, Gladiator was probably the last one to really get that kind of crossover appeal, which I really didn't like Gladiator. But I mean, uh, that's beside the point. That one kind of still. Spread, no, straddle that line a bit to think, hey, I think we could go back into this way. And then the other movies prove that they couldn't domestically, but they could overseas fairly well. Can I tell you a, an embarrassing story about Gladiator? We don't have those here. Real quick, real quick. <laughs> it, I, I did. I, um, I, it is a guilty pleasure of mine. I saw it twice, once in the, in the States and once in Rome because... We were touring well, Rome and, you know, I was hot and tired. And I'm like, you know, I was looking at the Coliseum. It's really got me in the mood to see Gladiator. <laughs> and it was playing. So we went and saw it. Um, and I'm actually really glad I did because um, uh, I learned something which I didn't know, which is 
I don't know where else this happens, but in Rome at least, um, during the middle of the movie, well, there was assigned seats. So even though there were Mm -hmm. six people in the whole theater, we were all seated together (laughs) in our assigned seats in the the little auditorium. Um, But then in the middle of the movie, like in the middle of a scene, it wasn't even like a real change. Movie stops, lights come up, and there's just a guy standing in the front with a tray and he's got popcorn. And there's no announcement. Wow. He's just standing there, just kind of looking back and forth. And some people get up and go and buy popcorn from him. And like, I guess that's what we're supposed to do now is this is our opportunity. <laughs> so I go buy the popcorn and then we sit there eating it and it's got sugar on it. It's sugared popcorn. <laughs> um, and then like a minute later, the movie just starts again in the middle of that scene, just picks up. Is it like they are counting their concession receipts and they're like, there's not enough. <laughs> I don't know. Stop the movie. <laughs> Maybe it's just like, you know, after 47 minutes, you need sugared popcorn. Like, to, yeah. it's uncivilized to do anything else. Right. Anyway, that's my Gladiator story. Well, I, I watched Gladiator wrong. I watched it literally minutes after it won Best Picture. And, and <laughs> so I, you hate watched it? So I hate watched it. Because I bought, I I was I was curious. It won Best Picture. The movie I was rooting for didn't win. I'd been, I honestly I can't remember. I have to. I'm not good with the years. Um, but it didn't win. I know that I was rooting for Michelle Yeoh for Best Actress for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, And I remember being really pissed that she didn't. I don't even. I can't remember if she got nominated or not. I feel like she didn't. But I remember thinking she had a lifetime of study to actually do the martial arts and Russell Crowe wins best actor. And he's just fighting. He's just swinging at a digital tiger. <laughs> but were I mean, you rooting? Uh, were you rooting for Aaron Brockovich? I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't remember which I have to look at them off, but irregardless, or, it doesn't really matter. But the, maybe it was crouching tiger, hidden dragon. It might've curious. Been. I was curious. Um, it probably wasn't shock a lot or traffic. Probably. Probably no, no. Um, they, I, it was probably a movie that wasn't nominated. I'm guessing, but I, I'll. Anyway, well, then you were bound to be disappointed, right? Then. Exactly. But so yeah, so I'd been drinking and I popped in as soon as the Oscars went off, and within five minutes I was like, "They're acting like we're already supposed to care about these people." <laughs> and I was just pissed off. I liked Oliver Reed a lot, but I was just pissed off the whole time. So I don't think I gave that movie its fair screening. But I've always still kind of been a little bit grumpy about Gladiator. Um, so, been here in 1955. I 59. I, 59. Just to set the record straight. <laughs> been here in 1959. Uh, I did not know it was an original religious epic. In the beginning, I did have the feeling like this is going to be the first movie we do on the show that Wade doesn't like. Now that changed. That changed uh, later on. And I so got just very by, excited. by virtue of it being a religious epic, you figured you no, wouldn't like it. No, it, it, uh, I, was, I was forced to examine, even as someone who loves older movies and likes slower movies and likes things to watch it, I'm watching this going, realizing that we don't watch movies like this anymore. This is, no. no, I take it back. Yes. I take, take that back. This is not how we watch movies anymore. We watch movies differently now. And, yes. And the shots, specifically... 
you know, I, I, I've seen tons of movies that were just long takes on a thing. But this one seemed particularly... And I remember looking at the production design, which is staggering. And I'm looking at it going, you know what? I, I don't think we're supposed to be sitting here looking at the production design and, and ogling it. But I think we're supposed to be looking at this like it's a painting. Like everything is placed in a specific place for a specific reason to evoke a specific idea or ideal and every mm -hmm. shot really basically would i, I remember the especially when uh, ben hur is in masala's office and it sets up the shot that looks just like a painting um and then it just slowly moves into a different place and stays there for could could have been eight minutes for all i know uh because it felt it just was forever and it was an evolving scene, but I remember going, this isn't how we watch movies anymore. You know, because I even started to get antsy, but I was enjoying it, but I was getting antsy that it wasn't cutting and it wasn't moving and it wasn't doing this. But then I was warring with myself because I was enjoying this, you know? It's funny that you say painting because I, watching it this time, um, it really struck me how theatrical I thought it was, mm -hmm. how much like a staged, a lot of the scenes between Ben-Hur and Masala then that first hour, hour and a half, who knows, <laughs> um, felt very stagey to me. Felt very much like just two actors doing, doing an old, doing their old theater right. thing. What did you think? A little bit, but I was more like, I've seen, I've had much stronger feelings about that. Like, like some of the Marx brothers movies where they didn't, you, you could tell that they, that wasn't their movie. Like it was a play that they were hired to be in like room yeah. service. We were watching this going, this is a completely different story that doesn't involve the Marx brothers at all. And they're just stuck in there to make their own funny. <laughs> and it, it really doesn't work. And those feel like film stage plays. It feels very theatrical. This really felt like, and I and when and I just want to clarify when I say it's like a painting, I'm not saying it wasn't cinematic. It's just that we were watching. We I was examining the movie as I would examine in a good painting, like just looking at what the the artist was showing you and why and how and where and what he was including in the frame, what he was including in the frame, you know, and 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 because. I mean, for heaven's sake, this movie is about Judah Ben-Hur. We don't see Ben-Hur until 20 minutes into the movie. And then the first time we see him, we don't, we just kind of see his form and we don't even see his face. Like casually, we don't see his face for at least three, four or five minutes. And it's not like they're like doing a dramatic, like Indiana Jones following him behind and we're just looking at his thing. They literally are just like, he just walks into an over-the-shoulder shot. It's it's like the movie doesn't care about him, and and I found that fascinating, and mainly because the movie begins with Masala. And and Stephen Boyd, I believe, is the actor's name who plays mm -hmm. him in there. I was surprised how much I really took to him. I thought he was great. He's very presentational. Well, no, he's not. I take that back. Like he's got that weird 50s actor voice that's very but whatever but he his first line when he walks in in front of his regiment and he stands up there and he turns and he says quietly to his his second command 
I've dreamed about this leading my own regiment forever. It's one of those mm-hmm. lines that I never buy when somebody says it, in, when they say it in front of everybody. And I totally bought into everything he was about at that moment. Like he just sold it so well, I thought. Like, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I instantly took to him. And yes, he had a very, you know, you could get presentational about it. But I, I, I thought he was pretty striking. Um, so say what you mean by presentational. This is a, oh, an sorry. acting method thing. Yeah, in acting, there's two different. There's usually two different types of things. Actually, there's presentational and representational. Presentation, like both styles, can work. Presentational is when you're kind of working from the outward in, when you're like presenting the character. Um, so, like, think Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence Olivier is, is considered one of the greatest actors. He's not someone who sits there and tries to think about his dead brother to get into a scene. He thinks right. about how his face is going to twerk here and how this is going to be. He's very presentational. He's presenting the character to you. Dustin Hoffman, conversely, is the epitome of the representational actor where everything's internalized. Everything is, um, is working from the out, inward out. Now, you could sit there and say that the representational method is superior or more authentic or more artistic. And a lot of people would tend to agree but it's just another way of working. I don't really think one way is better than the other. If I got to my head, you had to choose, I'd say, uh, representational. But how do I usually work? Probably more presentational. <laughs> if the choice I hate to admit between, it. I hate to admit it. The choice is between uh, running, running around uh, a bunch of laps before a take or right. not having to run a bunch of laps, I, I think I'll choose the presentation. Right, exactly. Well, there, I mean, it's just, I mean, you've heard the old story about Marathon Man. That's, yeah, that's what right. I was alluding to. Right. There, yeah. Where, where if, to our I listeners was, who... I was showing I was in on that joke. Yeah, I know, I know you were. Uh, I, that was me being cool. Sorry. Honestly, I wasn't, le- by using those two examples, I wasn't leading to the story. But for any listener who doesn't realize what we're, know what we're referring to, there's a famous Hollywood tale of, um, or acting tale, really, in theater as well, where uh, Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier are working on Marathon Man. Obviously, as I said before, they have two radically different styles of working. Now, Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman has to be, has like he's been up for days. So he, being of the method sort, stayed up for days and tried to, 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 to really display that, that type of exhaustion because by being that exhausted. But because he was so exhausted, he couldn't really perform because he was so exhausted. And it was causing some problems. And so at one point, the great Lawrence Olivier took him aside and said, you know, um, let me just, I thought I'd suggest, you try acting. It's so much simpler. <laughs> Just really popping up. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that was enraging to hear, but not without merit because not only does the actor need to be truthful to the character, but the actor also has to, you know, get the shot done. Right. It's part of his job. And so um, th- uh, uh, that that is... Uh, I feel it's a very valid story. So while I per- certainly admired Hoffman's technique more than Olivier's, I certainly value Olivier's technique to just get the job done, you know, and let everyone go home on time. You know what I mean? That has a lot of value. So, uh, so yeah. So basically, um, unlike the way we 
record this podcast. Exactly. You're not going home anytime soon. Um, there's no discipline. We're at, we're almost an hour in. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, 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 I was fascinated. The movie started with him and kind of grounded everything in him. And then Judah Ben Hur, we see him through how much Masala is interested, is, is, is glad to see him. And the movie, the camera doesn't even swing around to look at Charlton Heston at any, uh, for quite a while and, and doesn't make like a big deal about it when they do. So I thought that was, uh, that was interesting. Hey, can we, can, can we talk about Chuck Heston for just a second? Yes. Let's. Okay. As an actor, Chuck Heston as an actor. Yeah. What do you think about old Charlton? Now, old Cheston. I've seen lots of movies with Charlton Heston in it, but honestly, like John Wayne, I've only seen movies with him where um, I was already aware of the um, caricature of him okay. presented by impressionists and, and, and comedians and things like that. Um, and I also knew he had a reputation for being, you know, a great actor and great movie star. Now I'm watching him here and I'm kind of fascinated by him as an actor because I simultaneously can't figure out how he got this big. And I am also um, uh, enamored by him. And like, so I, I figured out what his real strength was in this movie. Okay. Is that he has the amazing ability to be so uh, emotionally vulnerable and to show emotional pain, just open nerve, just like just this with his eyes, he has the ability just to just can just transmit that. Yeah. So palpably anguish. Yeah. Anguish. Yeah. He's terrible at showing physical pain. It's laughable. <laughs> so like there's a shot in particular in it when he's like staring at Masala and his, he's just like, your heart is breaking for him because he's just so open and raw of like how I, how this whole world and heart is crushing on him. And then a guard comes up behind him and grabs him and he goes, yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And he like, is a, he is a teeth actor. He's a teeth and jaw, but no, but yeah, yeah. See, that's what I always thought he was a teeth and jaw actor, but I realized, no, he's an eyes actor mainly. That's where all his power is. And, the, and his, his, he's, um, the thing that everyone makes fun of him for is his teeth and jaw. But but his real power is in those eyes of his, which in the beginning, I'm looking at the way they film him. I'm like, he doesn't even have pronounced eyes. I don't know why. Like, how does this guy? And then in some shots, it's just piercing. So, like, um, I, I get that. How well, the, did, how... the galley scenes uh, particularly, mm -hmm. that's all that's all his eyes. Yeah. In those scenes, right. Yeah. So how do you feel about uh, Chuck Heston? Um, right. Uh, he's sort oh. of, um, he's sort of beyond, um, uh, criticism for me, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's sort of like, well, he's Charlton Heston, like yeah. how, you know, you ex just, that's a bare fact. Like it's, <laughs> there's no, there's no good Charlton Heston or bad Charlton Heston. There's only Charlton Heston. <laughs> He's just the Charlton Hestianist yeah. of them all. I, I find that very true, especially given the fact that there is definitely good Charlton Heston and bad Charlton <laughs> Heston. But it's true that it's like it's just Charlton Heston. It's, it's just like, Charlton it's all, Heston. It's all there. Yeah, like you say, he's not 
handsome. He doesn't look especially, yeah. you know, he's, he's not he's, like a, any kind of physical specimen, but he does project like power through intensity. Yeah. You know, he's intense. He's very intense. A, I remember looking at him going like in the first scenes where he's, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know if it was small-minded or, or even racist of me to sit there the whole time thinking Charlton Heston does not look Judean. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't do it. Do I, do, am I, am I wrong about this? But then you just, okay, I'll buy into it. It's fine. He projects that, he projects that majesty though. He, um, he can project True, like yeah. supreme self-confidence, uh, yeah. uh, and anguish at the same time. You know, it, I guess it's maybe that's the, the, the Charlton Heston cocktail. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I think that's exactly right. He, um, you know, perceptions of him uh, get colored a lot by his uh, his politics and mm-hmm. his um, his uh, NRA representation. Um, but I I always think of him as a really classy guy because I happened to uh, meet him uh, very briefly. Uh, he being a fellow uh, alumnus of uh, Northwestern University. Um, as we are, so he came to, to, to speak at the school. This is, um, this is my freshman year. So this is before you, you were there, right? I came fall of 93. That's right. Yeah. I think this is, I think this is spring of 93. He came, he came and gave a lecture and it was, uh, uh, people were really excited and, uh, you know, joking around with friends were like, ha I'm going to ask him, uh, at the Q and I'm going to ask him if it was fun making tough guys. <laughs> Or, you know, it's like, oh, so thrilling to have the star of Tough Guys come to come to speak of us. So come to speak of us. So we go see the, the lecture and it's a good lecture. And, you know, he kind of hits on the things you, he knows people want to hear about. He talks about um, the filming of the chariot scene. He talks about the, the makeup um, on uh, Planet of the Apes. He, uh, you know, kind of tells his old chestnuts, his Charlton <laughs> chestnuts. Um <laughs> And then it gets to the Q and A, and then you know I'm raising my hand like an idiot, and uh, and he never calls on me. And it turns out, uh, thank goodness, because I go up afterwards and uh, kind of stand in line. He's still on the stage, and you know takes the time, sticks around, and people want to talk to him, so he sticks around to give everybody some time. And so I get up there and I I shake his hand, and uh, he shakes my hand, nice firm grip. You know, he's an older dude at this uh, age. And I say, um, oh, uh, Charlton Heston, it's uh, it's an honor to meet me. Yeah, honor to meet you. So <laughs> was it fun making tough guys? And he doesn't miss a beat, looks me straight in the eye and says, actually, I wasn't in tough guys. That was Burt Lancaster. And I knew he wasn't. So that's the thing. He knew I didn't confuse him. He's gotten this before because he knew it wasn't right. Kirk Douglas I'd confused him with. He knew it was Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. Um so it must have been – I must not have been the only one who thought, oh, tough guys. It was Spartacus and Ben-Hur in the same movie, which is how right. I – how I, <laughs> how that had cemented itself in my brain somehow. Right. As we've demonstrated uh, over the episodes, <laughs> I don't have the most reliable memory. Anyway, but he was totally classy about it. So I'm like mm-hmm. freaking out like, uh, like totally embarrassed, you know, still shaking his hand like – uh, like, like barely hearing it, but he just like, doesn't miss a beat. Like, you know, that wasn't me. That was Burt Lancaster, but actually making movies is rarely fun. It's long days, you know, 14 hour days and you get up at 4am and you shoot all day and it's just really hard work. And 
So you put in the work and you, you do the best you can. You know, and I, I yeah. really had a lot of respect for how he handled that moment. He didn't, uh, you know, a lot of people could take it as an insult. Right. But he, he, you know, for him, given that lecture and given that Q&A, that was just another job to do. And he did it, you know, and he uh, he hit his mark and he delivered his line and, and he sent me on my way. So say what you will about the man. I, I, I was impressed with his classiness. He had that old Hollywood feel where, you know, I'm always I always got to be on. I'm always selling the product, mm-hmm. even when I'm here talking to this stupid little kid. <laughs> so. Um... Uh, Chuck Heston as an actor, going back to that. Yeah. You, you described his physical presence and form. In ben, the beginning of Ben-Hur, I was I was kind of still quizzical about it because I was like, well, his shoulders are kind of rolled. He's kind of spindly. And I'm like, I'm still having trouble re- thinking, how did this guy become a movie star? Because he's a movie star at this point. He had just done the Ten Commandments right before. And, um, of course, then later when he's on the raft with the general and he's shirtless, dragging that twisting that chain back i'm like okay i, I get all, it i get it. i get it now all oiled up <laughs> i was like i'm i'm, I'm a straight dude but i i, I get it <laughs> um it's still so, like a very old-fashioned idea of masculinity very much you know so. very like, and so. very different from the john wayne yeah model of masculinity that you that you brought up before but you know like watching charlton heston and ask action scene is like watching uh, I watched Goldeneye uh, last year, um, and Sean Connery. Goldeneye fight scenes. Uh, sorry, the other. <laughs> sorry, one Goldfinger. of the other one of the other James Bond movies with gold in the title, <laughs> not the Man <laughs> with the Golden Gun, not Gold Pussy, <laughs> or Thunder Pussy. The 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 woman who was painted in gold until she died. That one, Goldfinger. Goldfinger, thank you. I wasn't even trying to be funny. I actually couldn't think of it. Um, so I was watching uh, Goldfinger and uh, Charlton, not Charlton Heston, Sean Connery um, is attacking some guys like in a prison cell, and he ambushes, ambushes the guard, and it's just it doesn't. There's no like martial arts. He doesn't even punch the guy. He just like outmans him. He just outmanhoods the guy. And I don't mean he like whips out his junk or anything. I just mean like they just gets him on the floor, just knocks him down and just like overpowers him like a bear or something, you know? And that's how, that's how men fought up until what? Up until, uh, who changed that? When did, when did action movies stop being just like, I'm just going to be a bigger, tougher man and knock you on the ground and get this gun out of your hand. And they turn into every single action hero knows is a trained martial artist. When does that happen? Because Charlton's definitely in the, I'm just going to grab you by the wrist and get this sword out of your hand and <laughs> knock you right. off this ledge. Like that's how I'm, that's what kind of action star I am. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm going to blame Jeff Speakman. Is it Jim Cotta? Is Jim Cotta <laughs> The page turns. You guys, I, fi- I finally got to see Jim Cotta. That is priceless. That is a priceless movie. It, there's nothing like, like even Remo Williams, like mm. trains as a martial artist, but he's still like just kind of a beefcake. Right. I'm just gonna grab you like an ape <laughs> and like, overpower you. Kind right. 
fighter, but right? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Was it when Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and all those guys were really kind of dominating the box office here, or rather getting there and starting to dwindle? Action fans were looking to Hong Kong, right? So, like, they were enamored yeah. with Jackie Chan and, and Sammo Hung. And, and, and Jackie Chan had tried some crossover in the late 80s, and it didn't work. He did a drama, uh, uh, and it didn't work, which, honestly, I saw the trailer for The Foreigner the other day, and that's Jackie Chan doing this kind of more dramatic action revenge movie. And it actually looks kind of compelling. So I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering if Jackie Chan is going to have the Liam Neeson career from here on out. Because that's actually one thing I would like, I'd like to see. That'd be that. pretty. I mean, Jackie Chan is just a charismatic yeah, he's actor, amazing. you know? I mean. So, but when Rundle in the Bronx hit, that's when he finally kind of hit people who weren't already his choir, you know? Who yeah. were already singing the Jackie Chan hymnals. Um, now we're starting to get more of a seeing how actual ability as opposed to posturing has its thrills and then you know brandon lee with the crow and uh just think the early 90s is really where that and then when when, when jackie chan was hitting big then american audiences are seeing well what else is out there then we started hearing of chow yun fat and john woo uh, which chow yun fat's not really a martial artist i don't well in crouchy tiger he is but in like the killer and hard boil he's not really doing martial arts he's really just blowing people away <laughs> yeah you're right that's just but, gun food. but like at some point at some point it reached a point where if you're a white action hero mm-hmm. it's assumed that you know martial arts well statham didn't and that's that's like a that's a like that happened right that's like a demarcation yeah. point that's well, like well, the, the 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 epitome of that is i think is jason statham but i don't think that he was all that Unique when he is it just a matrix thing? Maybe is the matrix the turning point when like because UFC comes along and now you just kind of tough guys knowing judo and boxing move and boxing moves and right yeah I don't know it could it could just be the tough guys started finding actual ways to be tough other than glaring (laughs) and being massive in size Um, I don't know I don't know I, I feel I feel like I'm missing something very big and very obvious. Okay, maybe we'll come uh, back to that. Answer. Maybe we will come back to that. But that, that is a very interesting thing. Because I feel like when Statham kind of hit with Transporters and all those movies that he did, I don't feel like it was that odd at that point. Right. Uh, for that type of action star to be that... Um, we reach a point where it becomes assumed. And that's what right. I'm... Like, I'm not um, just going to punch you in the face. I'm going to sweep your leg at some point right. in this fight, right? Well, it's way more cinematic. I mean, just look at... You know, I look... I love Predator. I really do. But if I look at some of the... Like the raid on that on that camp, versus a, a terrible movie, uh, and I really don't like the movie. Is Jackie Chan's First Strike, but there's a like a ten minute scene in the middle of that movie where Jackie Chan fins off a bunch of guys with an aluminum stepladder. Yeah, and it's one of the most amazing things I have ever seen. Yeah, I love that movie for that scene. I I don't enjoy the rest of the movie, but I love that scene. Is that the one that ends with the hovercraft uh, tearing off a guy's pants and you see his butt? Yes, yes, that is the one. Fools! The God Cynicron demands correction! The movie, where the hovercraft runs over the bad guy, ripping his pants off and exposing his butt, was rubble in the Bronx! And remind me, what did this puny 
podcasters say when asked if it was Jackie Chan's first strike? Yes. Yes, that is the one. Yeah. I think he goes down a hill. He goes on a snowside hill in like a giant gerbil thing. But yeah, I remember. Yeah. That, yeah. Unbelievable, this guy. He's wrong again. Oh, no. The movie where he goes down the hill in the big gerbil ball thing is Operation Condor. More accurately, Armor of the Gods 2. Okay. Whew. <clears throat> Shake it out. All right. <sighs> All right, please continue. Cinecron out. Is that the one that ends with the hovercraft uh, tearing off a guy's pants and you see his butt? Yes. Yes, that is the one. That's, that's, that, that sums it up. Can I take us on another digression? I was in an <laughs> antique store and I bought... I bought some. It, I, I'm sorry. That that's. I, I one can't wait to know how those two things line up, and I also don't need to know because it's just so much fun as it is. Uh, Hovercraft tears off the guy's pants, shows his butt. You know what? I was in an antique store. <laughs> I was in an antique store yesterday, and I bought an alarm clock because it made me laugh so hard. <laughs> I. I would have paid almost any amount of money for it. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a pig sitting on a toilet the wrong way. So he's sitting backwards on a toilet and the lid is down. And he's got his hands over the tank of the toilet, but he's wearing pajamas with his ass hanging out of the pajamas. And he's got slippers on. And he's got a big old smile on his face. Um, and the clock is in the tank of the toilet. <laughs> and um, when the alarm goes off, it plays Turkey in the Straw, and his snout wiggles, and it, it looks like his butt's supposed to wiggle too, although that's not working. So he's, he's supposed to be a pig twerking on a toilet to, <laughs> to Turkey in the Straw. Um, and I gotta, I gotta get to work on his ass and get that... <laughs> Get that moving properly. Get that thing a wiggling. It's yeah. A, yeah. Get some motivation. Uh, get some uh, hustle in his bustle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually go for trashy when I'm when I'm out shopping, but uh, boy, it just gave me so much joy. I just had to buy that's, it. That's what it's all about these days. If something brings you joy, it's worth it. Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh, okay. So it should have been her. Jelton Heston. <laughs> presentational or representational? That's just it. I would say he's both. And it That's what I was going to say, it... too. I was going to say that, too. He's very ostentatious. If, if, I, if I had to label him one, I would say presentational. But he is so commanding and communicative about what's going on inside that... It's a damn good level of presentational. Well, there's uh, no way in hell that he was method. I mean, right? No, he's not that guy at all. He would take uh, it as a sign of weakness. I think uh, that you would have <laughs> I, to be. Method. I would think so too. Yeah, yeah. But, and I think that shows in the scenes where he's like communicating his emotional pain, and then when he's physically restrained, it, it's just ridiculous. 
<laughs> I can't get over that. It's one of the biggest 180s I've ever seen uh, in terms of quality. Um, I'm acting. Unhand me, fool. I'm acting. <laughs> um, so watching uh, Ben-Hur 1955, 1959, I found myself oddly thinking about the movie Funny People a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I haven't I haven't seen funny people. Literally as a companion as a comparison movie. Um I saw funny people as a test screening um before it came out. And then when it came out, it was mostly the same. It had a couple of scenes taken out, but one of its main main criticisms was that it was just too long. It was too long and rambling and self-indulgent. Okay. And 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 not really f- a comedy. It's it's actually quite sad. It's obviously about funny people, but it's it's a very. I mean, it's it has some laughs in it, but it's very it's 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 it's, it's a sad tale uh, that ultimately just becomes about something very small and specific about that joy of basically people sharing jokes. And the the thing is that the movie is imperfect. It's sloppy. It's self indulgent. It goes on too long. But I came out of that test screening and subsequently the, the theatrical release, I kind of felt like, yeah, that movie is, in, is, is over long, but it needs to be. It's, it's one of those movies where it's like, it is what it is, and it has to be that way. For all its imperfections, it has to be that way, otherwise it's not what it is. And um, I kind of felt that way about Ben-Hur. Like there was uh, so much cutting that could be done to trim that movie down to a manageable length and not ostensibly lose anything, but it would. It would lose a lot. You have to experience all of what that to get to the ending that ma- for the ending to matter. Yeah. Both Funny People and in Ben Hur. It has to be that long. And after the intermission, the movie really does pick up its pace. Like a ton of shit happens. <laughs> Between the intermission coming back and the end of the, in the end title, um, much differently from the beginning of the movie, pre-intermission, which is like two two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, but I think it all was critical that you sit with him during that time, and I think when we get to talking about the 2016 version, um, you see that the quote-unquote smart screenwriting choices they make that are considered to be smart screenwriting choices completely alter the point of the story mm, in my mm. opinion. And so like, while you're sitting there going, well, I see why they did that because that's considered quote unquote good screenwriting. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I wrote, I wrote my notes. I wrote 53 seconds into the movie. I wrote, I hate this. I oh, already yeah. hate this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it got better, but still I, I was like, I, I hate this so much uh and we'll we'll talk certainly about why later um but the um in hour four of this episode and and weirdly the yeah the um the chariot race when it finally got to the chariot race uh i was struck by how fascinated and engaged i was in the this the preparation for the chariot race than the race itself like the horses dragging the you know you know, combing the sand to get the track oh. quite right. How Weiler, William, the director William Weiler, really shows you, 
Like he, they don't just say, "Hey, look, they're prepping the field," and then cut away. They, you watch them do it. Right. <laughs> they, they, they prep that whole arena. They just comb the sand. You watch them do the whole thing, yeah. and I'm like, hey, "This is the it, most expensive film ever made. Right. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna get to watch this set. We, we right. spent a year digging this set out of the stone." <laughs> You're going to see every bit. They don't just go, that's the shot. You understand where we are? Moving on, which yeah, is what they would right. do now. They're like, no, you're watching this. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to soak and, in this for a while. Yeah. And honestly, I dug it. I was like, this yeah. is the stuff I don't get to see usually because we cut away from it. Right. And, and you really started to get a sense of the process of all this stuff. Yeah. It's all about spectacle. Right. It's like pure spectacle. And it's not necessarily spectacle in terms of limbs coming off. It was spectacle in terms of the pomp. Yeah. And that mattered to people at a certain time when it just kind of, we, we sneer at that now. I mean, you know, it's not much different from you being in the stands at that circus where you would show up early and you'd be excited to be there and you would mm -hmm. watch them prepare the track because you you're you're just spending the day at this chariot race and you know it's like going to a baseball game well not if you're a dodgers fan maybe but going to a baseball <laughs> game and watching uh getting there early so you can watch the the warm up you know and toss around the ball on the field and do, watch the groundskeeper do their thing it's all part of the atmosphere of of going to the game and so you could mm -hmm. think of that you could imagine that was part of the atmosphere for for that audience within the story if they or in the historically that you go to you go to the circus to watch the races, and so you see all that. You just sit there and watch it all, you know? It's all part of building up the excitement. So, uh, I'm trying not to talk about the next movie yet, but here's here's the thing that I found very... I'm just going to go into it, I guess, just because this is my thought process at the moment. But here's the thing I found very interesting when contrasting the 1959 version of Ben-Hur and the 2016 version of Ben-Hur, is that... I expected the 1959 version of Ben Hur, once it said a tale of the Christ, to be like, okay, this is going to be a very high pro religion, pro organized religion movie. And it, it was interesting to me how the movie, though it begins like the first God, large portion of that is basically the birth of Christ and the three yeah. wise men in the major. Yeah, I think it's about 20 minutes, if I remember right. right. But Ben-Hur 1959 doesn't make Judah Ben-Hur's arc. Like, like, like I saw, well, I take it back. I saw this um, summation of the movie that said the moving of Ben-Hur um, is about uh, a man who, uh, a wealthy man who falls to become slave, works his way back up to being a wealthy and, and eventually to his conversion to Christianity. And then I saw the movie and I was like, yeah, that's not really it. <laughs> that's not really it. It's not really a conversion to Christianity. And I found it very interesting that his heart, his arc, was not really to be convert to Christianity or even a belief in God, but rather the power of forgiveness and, and morality. Yeah, or I would say and, mercy. I would say mercy. The, the, I would say the theme of 1959 Ben-Hur is mercy. This is a story mercy. of mercy. Right. And whereas the new Ben-Hur works very hard to show how progressive it is to the point where he even has lines like love your enemies. That's very progressive <laughs> <laughs> to where they're, 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 they're trying so hard to uh, 
pontificate in, in its values and beliefs, but in not talking about religion, the 2016 movie actually ends up advocating for everyone to fall in line behind religion. Wait, which one does? The 2016 version. I felt like the Chuck Heston version was like, this is a religious epic. It's a tale of the Christ. Yeah. But then basically teaches forgiveness and mercy. Yeah. And doesn't say, look, you should be a Christian. It just says, look at the power of forgiveness and mercy. I mean, it's clearly um, deifying Christ. No, no question. In all sorts of ways. But it doesn't. It doesn't really feel like it's saying, hey, everyone watching this movie, be a Christian or else, right? I don't feel like it does that. Yeah. It just kind of shows Judah Ben-Hur just being so struck by his dying words were, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Yeah. And I felt his words take the sword out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite line of the movie. Uh, um but he doesn't felt, say cold dead hand. He says I it falls. I know. It's, just, it's I know. so ironic. Yeah, it's uh, really, it's very ironic. His, he, he said, Lord, even in the moment of his death, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And I, and I felt his words take the sword out of my, out of my hand. Um, and then later for him to go on and say, you'll get the gun when you pry it from my cold dead hand in yeah, real life. He kind of, you know, he didn't take that, uh, that lesson to heart. Right. Quite so much. So I um, felt like the new one, weirdly, in, in trying to show that it wasn't trying to be a religious conversion tool, it's in, it, it seemed to be advocating for fall in line behind religion, behind Christianity. And I found that to be very, just very interesting. Um, right. right. Let, yeah, but, let's get, I want to return to that when we get to the right. 2016, because I, I thought that was just also muddled. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's just take us through the movie. Um, All right. Um, so we got the the Christmas story opening, mm-hmm. um, just kind of sets up that there's the this Messiah in the world now. Um, mm-hmm. Then let's see, I'm just going from uh, from memory. Then the next section is um, Ben Hur being reunited with Masala and having a, a little um, little spear chucking, little spear chucking yeah. action at the cross. I, I was wondering what the significance. Because remember when they do the spear contest, they say where the where the two beams cross. And uh, you yeah. look at it, and it's it's kind of a crucifix up there. Yeah, uh, 2016 does a little bit of cross imagery, but at a different point when Ben Hur, when Ben Hur is on the cross, when he's floating on the wreckage after uh, after the galley, uh, battle. and when they're goofily holding up Masala's spoiler alert dead body in oh, yeah. after the chariot race, which was a disappointment all in itself. But we'll get to that later. Yeah, um, yeah. the, the, um, so um, that, did you feel some, uh, homoeroticism? That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Like, I, uh, let me grab your spear. I figure, and just, you know, the total adoration that they both had that I, I kept looking at it going, okay, am I just reading into this because I'm a modern day fuck nut? And am I just, <laughs> am, I, am I just a jerk reading into this and going, this seems, this seems very palpably homoerotic. Not that that would be a bad thing at all. I'm just saying that, like... But for the time, like, you know... For the time. it in 1959, it would be pretty weird. Yeah. Um, but I right? apparently am not... We are not apparently the only ones who noticed that. It's been written about as being a potential uh, uh, part of that movie by others as well. So I don't feel... I don't feel as... I mean, so it's only one year later that the uh, Kirk Douglas Spartacus film has the uh, I prefer oysters and snails line, right? <laughs> 
Like, I haven't seen Spartacus like, yet. Oh, really? No, oh, I haven't. Man. Spoiler alert. Oh, it's one of the great scenes. It's um, these two two Roman dudes in a hot tub. Uh, <laughs> and one says the other, do you prefer oysters or snails? And then they like have a digression on uh, like the rebellion or something that they're they're fighting against. Uh, but then one guy comes back and he says, I prefer oysters and snails. <laughs> and it's like totally, yeah. there's no oh. bones about it, you know? I mean, not just because they're both mollusks, but because... Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. there's no there's no mistaking the intention of that right. line of dialogue, right? And it's about it's you know, it's kind of showing how immoral the Romans were. Like that's what that line is doing in nineteen sixty, right? But it wasn't opening up a progressive dialogue. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. I don't I mean I don't that's my reading of it, is like yeah. that's that's showing the Romans are decadent and immoral. Mm-hmm. So one year earlier in Ben Hur when there's this homoerotic charge coming off of Charlton and uh, and uh, Masala, Ben-Hur and Masala, is that doing the same thing? Is that showing Masala's changed when he came back? And, like, is this uh, a homoerotic charge that wouldn't have been there before and Masala's the one introducing it because he's now he's now he's Roman in a way that he wasn't before? Or is it something else? Well, if you're going to take that line, I think I would think that to be true to oneself is what Judah ben Hur's being. Now, he's run off and joined the larger world society and has changed and has come back. Because you notice in the 1959 version, Charlton Heston doesn't marry until long after he's been betrayed by Masala. Or he doesn't get involved with um, Esther or start you know, making eyes at her until after this whole Masala thing has been like, well, he's obviously, he's, he's obviously a changed man. And so you kind of get this kind of feeling that like there was a very strong relationship, potentially romantic relationship between Masala and Ben-Hur. And then he goes away, comes back as a Roman centurion and is obviously still feels the same way, but it's going, I'm no, I, this is, that's not who I am now. That's not who I am and is looking kind of, you know, down at, at who he once was. And then Ben Hur feels crushed. It's kind of, I mean, that's kind of, you could read it that way. I'm not making myself very clear, but I mean, you could read it that way to where the change is a heterosexual front. You know, the change in Masala is the, the Roman guard is actually him saying, no, I'm straight, <laughs> you know, or, or so we that they have, were, that they, they were, were uh, they did have a romantic, uh, whether realized or not. Right. Okay. Or either a, a realized relationship or a one of hope or a, a unrequited one, or maybe. I, I mean, they could very well just be very, very, very close friends. That's completely legitimate. Yeah. And, 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 and everything that happens is completely within those bounds of friendship uh, and how palpable that friendship can be. However... The way it's depicted in the gazes makes you kind of think oh, there's something more going on here. How I, it's hard not to, and I wonder how. I'm, I'm surprised that the movie did as big business as it did with the country being as gay panicked as it was at that time. That that didn't go. I want. I would like to see if there's any like film criticism at the time that was heralding as as being something, you know, indecent from the piety of that time. I don't know. 
or did it just go over their heads? Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like I feel like it's incidental. Completely incidental. Yeah. Any kind of homoerotic. I mean, or even I mean, I'm trying to take it as a reading and not uh, not what do they call it? The intentional fallacy. Right. I'm not trying to guess at the motives of William Wyler or 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 the performers. But it um, is a it is a it is a specific choice that they make but they it's not you're right it's 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 incidental to the story yeah i feel what i feel like what they're really doing there is just showing the depth of their affection right. in a way to to make the betrayal hurtful yeah you know absolutely and it's just they go so far <laughs> with that affection like, that it starts to feel like homoeroticism quick quick transgression so i was in our friend doug cohen's directing project as an actor and me, uh, and myself, and Amon Hawk were the leads, and um, he got and Doug kept saying, throughout the whole project, get closer together in the frame, get closer to, closer together in the frame, and we kept getting closer and closer. Like we literally, we were like our faces were really close to each other, but it didn't look so. He kept saying, oh, it doesn't look that way in the monitor. It's fine. It doesn't look weird in the monitor. Don't worry about it. We're like, okay. So we just went with it, and we were always really close in the frame, and we were. Two guys share an apartment and, uh, and, and tell this whole other story. When he screened it in our directing class, everyone, including the professor, started praising Doug for telling a story about a, um, a homosexual couple without making their sexuality the focus of the story. That's just who they are. And Doug looked around the room and then went, uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, it was brave of me. <laughs> it just, we just, just took it. It was like, yeah. yeah. So brave, in fact, I never considered the consequences. <laughs> and like, you know, we, it wasn't something that, that made us feel bad. We were confused at first. We were like, what? And then we went. It's natural to feel confused <laughs> Exactly. It was college after all. And, and we were, uh, but then we went we go, hey, that's actually, that's actually kind of cool. But it's funny that it was totally unintended and just came about because he wanted the shot tighter. And we <laughs> just were always, but yeah, so, so I can totally see that being just a unintended consequence to a choice being made to be like, show the depth of their uh, friendship and passion to be, to make the betrayal that much worse. I completely can see that that could happen. And, and it's just people, uh, reading into it more than it is however it is there and uh part of the beauty of the film is of, of film in general is that we are the other part of that storytelling our brains yeah, fill in definitely most to do most of the work and and that's actually what really good filmmaking does um so masala and um and being her have their reuniting masala wants jude have been her to give him specifics about adversaries to the he was he was to rat yeah he was to rat on his countrymen right. who who's who are being the dissidents yes and we never see no, them never see them in this whole movie we never see these these rabble rousers these zealots these uh mm -hmm. these rebels that we hear a lot about them but they're always they're always uh just sort of in the background never in, not even in the background always off screen which i think as the second movie, as the new version proves, uh, people could generally say that that's a bad screenwriting move to have this force there, but never see them. But for a three and a half hour movie to never get around <laughs> to showing them, it, it is, it is weird. It is weird. Right. It's right. pretty weird. But honestly, they were, they weren't the story. 
the point of the story, um, one of my favorite moments in the movie is coming up. And it was a mo moment that I found so powerful and I never see scenes like this anymore. Masala's trying to get, you know, Judah Ben-Hur to, to name names. And he finally says, look, I want to be your friend. I am your friend. But if you're asking me to choose sides, I guess I'm against you. Yeah. Right. And so then a, a governor is being escorted through the town. Pontius Pilate. No. Well, I thought it was Pontius Pilate in the 2016 version. Was he Pontius Pilate? Oh, in that's the, right. They, they changed, changed the, it. They changed the timeline. That's right. right. That's right. That's so right. it was just some other random governor who was being escorted through the town. and The guy who is arriving... Right, because yeah. in the 59, he's arriving like on the same day as, or pretty much at the same time as uh, uh, Masala. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Ben-Hur and his sister and mother are standing on the top of their home watching this parade go by. Everyone's out watching the parade go by. And his sister leans on the roof and a tile comes loose. First you, first you, get, the, you get to see the, the real subtle... Is it, is it subtle? It's not so <laughs> That's subtle. subtle. Where... It's sort of unannounced. Um, oh, let's watch the parade. Tile shift moves slightly. Yeah, yeah. Like where there's talking right. about like, <laughs> right. You know, and then it's like a few minutes later in the scene when when it actually falls. Right. I thought that was kind of yeah. cool how they set so that like, up. So it falls and then hit strikes the governor on the head, knocks him off his horse. He doesn't die, yeah. but he's, and so everyone turns up and sees it as an attack. So they raid, they capture Judah Ben Hur, his mother and sister. And then, in my favorite scene in the movie, I think, Masala is alone up on the roof where they were. And he's looking around, and he's looking at the tile, and he looks at the thing, and he doesn't say anything, but you can tell, because they've, they've told him yeah. it wasn't an attack, it was an accident. And, and it'd be a pretty lame it's attack. It's a pretty lame attack. And so he goes up there and looks at it, and you could tell he, go, he kind of realizes, yeah, this is pretty probable. It's pretty probable that this is an accident. Yeah. And then he comes back down and says, I have to make an example of you. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. and, and that, that scene of him looking at it and you know, not being duped by a story that he wants to be true or, or being lied to by somebody else, he made the decision, yeah, this is probably what happened and I'm going to go the other way because this works for me. Good drama is about the decision people make. Exactly. And yeah. I found that to be, it was, that was just amazing. Because then Ben-Hur is proclaiming his innocence in the face of this. And then also to spare his family, which he does not. And so then they're both taken, he's taken to the galleys to be a slave on a slave ship. And, and his family is taken to the, the, the tower, or the, the tower? Dungeon. Dungeon. And then he spends five years on a, on a slave ship. Three, three years. I'm sorry, they changed it. Yeah, three years on a slave ship. For some reason, in 2016, they tacked on two years. Yeah. They also changed his number. Yeah. In 59, he's 41. Oh. And then in uh, 2016, they ch they changed his number. 61? I think they made a 61. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know why, it's like, well, why'd they bother to do this? I'm not like feeling they didn't this number. Even, it's like they pointedly didn't... I, and I don't know if the number, the number is not in the, it's not mentioned in the 25 version. They never say his number. Um, but of course, there's far less dialogue in, <laughs> in the 25. Um, How long is the 25 version? It's long. It's like two and a half hours. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's long. Wow. It's good too. It's pretty impressive. You mentioned, uh, you thought the 59 was like a lot like a painting. The 25 is very consciously restaging paintings oh really okay. um 
particularly the Last Supper. Anyway, yeah, it was like it's like made a point of okay, we're not gonna base this on the previous versions of Ben Hur. We're doing our own original mm-hmm. Ben Hur. So it's like they kind of remembered that he had a number, <laughs> and they kind of remembered that he spent a lot of years on a galley, but they didn't bother to like go check, and so they just went from memory and said, oh yeah, he's number sixty-one, and he spends five years on the galley. Like, why do you yeah. make? Why do you bother to make those? choices why do you yeah why would, why you would that be it? a conscious yeah, choice to make those changes to show differentiate i mean i don't know the the because if you're writing it just seems lazy yeah well i mean it's also like like well you are doing your own thing so you're going to put in things that matter to you as a as a writer and, and the weirdest thing is the new one i think was written by john ridley but we, i got i got a little bit of background into the the history of the, the the new one although i'm sure there's a lot more that i could not find uh but we get to that later the um uh I noticed that they said he was five years on the ship, which I immediately was, was kind of jarred by because I thought, wait a minute, it had been five years since he was taken from Judea in the first, in the, I guess the third version in, in th- 1959. Like he was on the slave ship for two years then spent two years in Rome and came back. So he'd been five years gone from Judea. And then and, oh, and they man. said, how long are you on the slave ship? And it was like, I've been on it five years. And I almost went, no, 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 three years, two years in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> who who didn't do their research? <laughs> but um, the the ship battle scene. What? Wait, no. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Not yet. Not yet. The ship training scene. The uh, when Quintus Arius arrives on the ship oh. in fifty nine, and he tests them. Mm-hmm. He puts them through their paces. This is my not only my favorite scene of the movie. This is one of my favorite scenes of all time. Mm. Quintus Arius shows up. And he's like, let's 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 see what these guys can do. Let's show them who's boss. We're gonna break them. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's getting any ideas that they're getting off this ship. We're gonna we're gonna do this right now. You know, and so they do the, you know, battle speed, ramming speed. It goes through four speeds, right? And then it just goes on and on and on. And he's just like showing them, I have complete mastery over right. you, right? And you see how how horrible it is to to be chained to this oar and have to row it and keep up this pace and you see guys collapsing left and right and and the guy's just sitting there watching him and you think he's going to stop and then he keeps him going you know Mm -hmm. and this goes on forever that's my favorite scene of the movie Mm. what did you think of that scene it was great um uh, i mean it was it was very effective um i don't think i was watching it in the best conditions i think that was one part when it was on my phone <laughs> and i remember when i actually <laughs> got to a computer i i went back and watched rewatched some of it um because um i did i felt like there was a lot that i was missing i found the things the the, the details in this in, in that whole sequence and, and that this happens later on like like you know when the when whenever when the boats collided and they're sinking the the details where they would cut to show some of the other slaves trying to undo their iron shackles in vain and they can't get them off. Yeah. And then it goes away and it comes back to that same guy and he's tearing his skin off underneath that shackle. Like, like it's, it's him trying to get that shackle off is literally peeling his skin off. Like it's that futile and that damaging little things like that. Um, are not things that I've seen in the in the movies of this age, and honestly, not seen much, you know, in movies of today. 
And so those, there were lots of those things throughout that whole sequence that really affected me. It was like, I'm not just going to show you that these guys are trapped and doomed. I'm going to show you it's Howering or ha, 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 whatever. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> they were Howard. They were Howard. But, you know, I, I must not have been in complete vibe with the movie because I was, it did take me a while to figure out when, when uh, Ben-Hur frees himself. Well, you know, he frees in vain a lot of times, but say, frees a lot of trapped slaves and gets them out of there valiantly. And then when he gets up to the top and he sees all the battle going on, uh, that he immediately goes to rescue the general. And at first I was like, why does he do that? But then, <laughs> then it, I, I was ashamed how long it took me to realize, oh, because he knew he unchained him and he didn't know why. Why would he do that? I guess in my mind, when, right. when they unchained him, I'm thinking, well, because he wants him to be a, wants him to be his guy. Like a brawler. He was wanting a fighter, right? Or a fighter or a charioteer. That's why he brought him to his office. Oh, um, I don't remember. He wanted him for something, and Ben, ben Hur refused. And then he went yeah. back to the he went back to the thing, and then he was unchained. I think it might have been gladiator. Gladiator. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, right. I think it was a gladiator. And so um, my mind was just like, oh, he's trying to butter him up, but but you know, then I later realized this is the part of the theme of like someone showed you a kindness, and I have no idea why that guy showed me this kindness, and how that's kind mm -hmm. of this very effective thing throughout the whole thing. And that's why he saved him. He's like, why did you save me? Cause right. I would have died. But also right before he dives, uh, th that scene in terms of stunt work blew my mind. Have you ever seen a one shot take where the lead actor sets another man's face on fire? I know. <laughs> like I, I literally was, I literally was sitting there and I yelled out, Oh fuck Chuck Heston. <laughs> were you supposed to do were that? You, exactly. It looks so horrifying. Were you trained with that torch? <laughs> just took a, I was stick that face. This other actor's face literally catches fire. And I went back and I watched it a couple of times to see if the protective gear. No, it was just, he just had makeup on. And just probably had, you know, he's, probably everything was soaked a little bit in, in something, but it was just, it's crazy. And then when the actor falls off, when the actor playing the general falls off, what's his name? The general Quintus Arius. Quintus Arius falls off the side of the boat into the flaming water. Yeah. And then Chuck right. and then Chuck Heston's character in the Jubin Herd jumps off and goes into that same flaming water, which at that time, mind you, though I don't think I have to say, CG effects were not a thing. <laughs> So these yeah. guys really As, uh, is is sadly evident during the miniatures um, <laughs> boat. Yeah, it's funny and how the... tossing tossing their little match heads at each other. <laughs> that's uh, that's not a very effective. Right. Uh, um, I was spectacle in this film. I was curious how how that was received in the day. Was it just that's just kind of standard, like. A standard uh, expectation. Okay, so that's the thing. In the 25 version, uh -huh. they're using real fucking real size ships in really? that battle. Yeah. So the um, after I, I I watched the 59 version again, then I went back and watched the the 25. The the sea the, the the training sequence, the the breaking of the will sequence is is absent from the 20 from the 25 version, but the um, the sea battle sequence. 
it's really fucking impressive. Really? I I would recommend if nothing else watch that part of of the 25. It's really cool. They're using real size ships fully full of extras and full of like stuntmen and it's a it's a big it's a big deal. It's uh it's a lot more exciting. Now there aren't the fire effects which you thanks for reminding me of because I forgot <laughs> that. Because after I watched the 25, I'm like, oh, this is so much better than the Sea Battle and the and the 59 version. Um, and it is on the whole. It's got some uh, extra drama to it. Like you get to see the pirate captain. Uh, he's got like a name too. It's like some barbarian type name, something the terrible. Um, and you can see that he's got uh, uh, Roman prisoners on his ship. And there's a little bit of drama um, and the, the 16 version makes a reference to this because he brings up a, a Roman prisoner. And you can tell he's Roman because he's still got his helmet on with the <laughs> horsehair plume, which uh, doesn't seem like you might keep your prisoner wearing that. Um, but he straps him to the bow of the ship when they're going to ram the, the Roman galley. Mm-hmm. And so there's this drama of seeing that guy get lashed to the bow and then him, you're like at his point of view or like following him in close up as he's about to get his face rammed into oh, into the Roman galley where, where Ben-Hur is. And then you see all the, there's a lot more action of uh, sailors storming each other's decks um, with like no character <laughs> that we know about uh, in view is just a lot of action. But it's it, the way it's staged, it's uh, it, it, it's quite involved. It's 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 pretty impressive just that they got like, you know, 20 full-size ships full of <laughs> decks are full of actors wow. to, to stage this battle is pretty as, amazing as opposed to a few poorly constructed wooden dolls standing still in close-up yeah i mean the ore right. things were kind of the like, ore. Woo, look three little pieces of fire flying <laughs> well the i you know and the first couple of shots i didn't mind i didn't even think about it i was like yep those are ships coming in and then like when they did close-ups i'm going is it just because this is an HD that this looks so terrible? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was distracting. Although scenes where they, I remember there's a shot where the ship's turning and they say oars in and they pull all the oars in and it, it, it kind of worked for me, I guess, but they, I, I liked that. But uh, yeah, I kept thinking, did audiences tolerate this or did they, were they just, wow, a spectacle or were they like, yeah. When I talked to my parents about movies back then, they, they say that they kind of all the audiences kind of acknowledge that this is the point where the filmmakers were playing with toys. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just kind of like, yeah, here's the scene where they're doing that. So like, it wasn't like they, they were being um, uh, mystified by how is this happening? It's like, yeah, this is where they got boats in a bath. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way that kind of makes me go, yeah, people have always been people. People have always yeah. had a certain level of, of perception and understanding. It's not, you know, it's not like my dumbass feeling when I was a kid that like I had this weird belief that movies, as time went on, storytelling got better, as technology got better because technology got better, right? That's what yeah. I believed until I was a sophomore in high school. I just never thought about it. It wasn't a theory I came up with. It was just something that I had I had just assumed in kid logic because all I had seen of older movies was the Tarzan and Godzilla movies that were on Channel Four out of Indianapolis. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it wasn't until college that I saw Citizen Kane and I was like, Jesus, this could have been made today. 
Yeah. And um, but it wasn't. But the movie that was the turning point for me was a very important movie in my life, which was The Manchurian Candidate, the the first one. Because I don't know why, but I sought it out for some reason. I, I I had drove to another county to get it. I can't remember why I did this, but I was I was supposed to watch it, so I watched it. Wanted to see some hot Angela Lansbury. Yeah. And so the the opening scene sequence, the brainwashing sequence with captured soldiers in you know New York ladies gardening party a club, mm-hmm. cutting between that and the the China. Um, war room and then the mixture of the two as they would cut back and forth that i literally had this thought watching that movie i was like they they made movies like this back then <laughs> and then the other side of my brain went of course they made movies like this back then and i it suddenly dawned on me oh whatever unverbalized bullshit thing you thought of that explained why those movies look so bad and the ones here look look much better that's obviously not true and because now we got movies where like i love looking at movies like um oh like like the masters of the universe with dolph lundgren like what year it came out like it came out the same year as like you know some huge amazing effects movie and you're like oh like like how is this from the same year (laughs) right (laughs) They did not have the same budget. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's the things you don't think about as a kid. You know, you don't think about uh, 1987, Masters of the Universe, 1987. Well, what else came out in 1987? Yeah, what's the big... Full, uh, full, uh, full Metal Jacket, <laughs> Princess Bride, Predator, Lost Boys, RoboCop, Empire of the Sun, Spaceballs. Well, Spaceballs had some pretty good special effects. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Lethal Weapon. Well, The Running Man. I'm not going to. Uh, uh, which is Eastwick. Raising Arizona. Evil Dead 2 came out the same year. I'm sorry, but uh, what are we trying to accomplish yeah, right now? I'm sorry. I don't know. Inner Space came out there. <laughs> just reminiscing about just reminiscing about 1987. Sorry, it, that was not a tangent I meant to get on. So we're going back. You're, you're... <laughs> I was just trying to say I love the fact that like you look at a movie. I just randomly picked Masters of the Universe. And I was just like, there's a movie that looks like this, that looks like we associate with certain time so, periods. So you thought, you... Advances in, you thought advances in technology were hand-in-hand uh, uh, hand with advances in storytelling. Yes, as a, as, as up until 1990 even, when I was a high school, uh, sophomore in high school. And that's when I had this realization like, oh, <laughs> there were, that's, that, that, that is certainly not the case. So anyway, but you accept things as a convention. So if you know if, That's if what you I was looking for, we're used to seeing, if you're used to seeing uh, silly bathtub boats. Yeah. <laughs> when it came time to show si- like, ships, that's um, how they do them. Then yeah, you just like you you knew, it didn't pull you out of the the tail, even though you knew, those are fake little boats in a bathtub, right. because it was convention. But in '25, they didn't. Maybe that convention hadn't been established, so they thought they had to go out and build <laughs> Big <boat>. 20 ships <laughs> and hire. Oh, well, I mean, you know, so they hired thousands of extras for other scenes in Ben Hur. But uh, they thought, well, maybe we can cut a corner here because everybody knows it's, it's bathtub time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we're, we're on a ship now. It's bathtub time. <laughs> 
<laughs> Everybody get out your rubber duckies. And, um, your, and your flaming matchsticks. Yeah. yeah. And so you don't think twice. And then when it, you know a, a movie comes along, like uh, when they remake King Kong, and like, wait, I can see... I can see her in the gorilla's hand, and I can see the gorilla's face at the same time. And you know that my, my mind's being blown because I know they don't do that. Well, I, they probably that probably shot probably does happen in the in the original King Kong. There probably is a composite shot of her in the hand and the stop motion face. Think of a better example. There there are times when you know you're seeing a landmark in movie technology, mm-hmm. and that's what's exciting about it is you knew they couldn't do this up until now. Like and Terminator now 2. Like Terminator 2. Right. Yeah. Um, and then a few years later, you're sick of it. <laughs> you're like, well, oh, every movie's doing this now. You know, but yeah, when morphing technology came out, that was, you know. Because other movies... Because the the genius application of that specific technology had already been taken, yeah, which yeah. was right. It is literally a liquid metal thing. <laughs> well, I, I well not to uh, make a silly example, but if you take the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie and compare it to the second one, Secret of the Ooze, and you look at the articulation of the characters in the suits, faces, faces, <clears throat> um they're vastly different. And the reason that is, is that the um, Jim Henson Creature Shop created the suits and they puppeteered them on the set of the first movie. When the sequel came around, the studio just bought the suits and didn't hire the Jim Henson puppeteers. Oh yeah. And it's- So they didn't have the acting. So they didn't have the the experts who knew how to perform. They just had like, I don't know. I I don't know who they got, but they didn't get the people who had built them and knew them and worked with them and are honestly the big pros in the world about it. So uh, they just wanted to, they just, we're just buying the suits and then we're, we'll, we'll handle it from here. And it shows. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of quality of either movie, that really, that was a, it's, it's glaring. It is said that the puppeteering team, Frank Oz and the guy who did Yoda's ears and the guy who did Yoda's mm-hmm. nose <laughs> um, and the guy who did Yoda's eyelids. Um, it's too bad that that as a team they they couldn't be nominated for uh, an acting award. Yeah, because that in Empire that Yoda performance is pretty amazing. It is. I can't I can't even like make myself watch it as a puppet. Right. Even t- even today. Yeah, I just watched it recently. I showed it to my son for the first time, and I was glad he actually sat through it because he Star Wars. It took about. A bunch of times for him to agree to. The effects are so outdated. Well, it wasn't that he just? It was because we wanted him to watch it. That's why. Show me the shiny ships from uh, (laughs) Phantom Menace. (laughs) I want. Come on, the shit's all dirty and dusty. (laughs) But like, uh, yeah. So like, we. I was watching it, just going, and I'm thinking about how George Lucas kept saying that, you know, they're on the set shooting it and thinking this isn't going to work. Like he goes, Frank can do some great things, but this 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 might, what were we thinking? Like, this is going to be the end of us. And then they get in the edit room and it's magic. It's like, yeah, it's like, he's not a puppet. The only time he really right. feels like a puppet is when he's got his butt in the air and he's digging around in that, right. in his thing. That's the yeah. only time. Even the weight, the weight's wrong. The weight's yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we've gone now from uh, uh, Ben Hur to te Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Yoda. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Let's go back to. Um, oh, before we get away from the galley, I just want to tell this one little thing. There was a time in my life when I was planning in my head a concept album based on Ben Hur. And the best part was um, going to be doing the, the, the galley sequence with uh, cruising speed, boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, battle speed, boom, 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 warp speed. <laughs> and then go to kick off the whole, kick off the jam. Um, okay, so we're on the raft with oily, 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 uh, having leaped through the burning oil. Right. And having retained a, a nice, healthy coat of it around his. <laughs> Sinewy form, yeah. the not quite ripped Charlton Heston <laughs> grabs the the chain he's uh, wrapped around Quintus Arius and uh, makes him his slave. And a little bit of ironic comeuppance mm -hmm. stops him from stabbing himself in the gut. Right. In the twenty five version, he stops him from drowning himself. He's oh. just gonna jump. He's just gonna jump overboard um, because he thinks he's lost the battle. Assumes he's lost the battle. Right. Because uh, it sure wasn't looking good, and so in disgrace he wants to kill himself. So Ben Hur, in order to perform his act of reciprocal mercy, has to show some tough love, right? And enslave him basically <laughs> to keep him from killing himself. <laughs> Which you know, on the whole, Ben Hur has a, a relatively positive view of slavery. Yeah, the, the whole courting of Esther as the slave servant is very uncomfortable in, in a way. In well, the there's, a, there's a the line. First scene. Is, is there, do I remember correctly that there's a line? Because, you know, when we first see with him with Simonides, I think mm -hmm. that's his name, his, his, uh, the guy who manages all his money yeah, and his slave, his slave who manages all his money. He's like, uh, I think of you as a friend, not a slave. But is there another point... Who says it to whom? Where someone says, if the, if the law allowed, I would free you. Right. Does Ben-Hur say that to Simonides, or does Quintus Arius say that to Ben-Hur? That sounds like a Quintus Arius, because I remember thinking they're really dancing around this issue while not succeeding in the, <laughs> in, in the beginning <laughs> part of Ben-Hur. They, they, um, the, they do give you the impression that, that the, the law restricts his ability to free his slaves. They his don't slaves actually are, spell yeah. out what that law says. I think it is an interesting example about how the American institution of slavery is a historically particularly cruel version of it. Like it's a it's an outlier in terms of just how perversely brutal mm. the American institution of slavery of Africans was compared to I would imagine slavery elsewhere was pretty bad too. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't but, great, but there were laws that you had to treat your slaves well, or you would be punished. True for for mistreating a slave. No, no such, no such concept of that. No concept um, in American in, history. In America, yeah, slavery was a little bit more like a a business arrangement. I mean, definitely your freedoms were curtailed. I'm not. I'm speaking. I'm not an expert in this. I'm not a historian or anything, right? But. Um, clearly here, what we see is, is 
is slavery is something more like indentured servitude. Yeah. Which is what they directly refer to it as in the 2016 version. They say, you are my servant. They never say slave. They never, yeah, they, they, they just Until bypass, he... which is probably a smart choice. Right. In right? terms of... Because do you really want to get into right. what, what's... You know, it feels it feels weird not to address it more heavily if it's right. And then it just becomes a big distraction. So, uh, so now we're in Rome. We get our first uh, peek at Pontius Pilate. You're right. I was I was mixing up the the versions here. Peter Ustinov. Oh yeah, I didn't recognize him. Um, from Logan's Run. <laughs> from the Jungle Book, he was a uh, who was he in Jungle? He was with a tiger. See the tiger? Yeah, I think so. He's got a cool voice, that guy. Mm-hmm. Do you think he just like spent half his career playing Romans? He just <laughs> seems like he just feels like he probably has, right? <laughs> I was looking down uh, uh, old Cheston's uh, um, filmography, and he's played Mark Antony like a bunch of times. Mm. Both I can in, totally see that. Both in uh, Julius Caesar and in Antony and Cleopatra. I actually really did enjoy his casting as the player king in, in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. I thought that was a really nice touch. He's also in, oh, what was the movie? Oh, he's in Wayne's World, or was it Wayne's World 2? And I don't remember this, but his credit line is, good actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the bit that they cut to someone saying we shouldn't have a good actor do this so they cut to him do something I don't, I don't remember don't remember at all um so uh we spent a little time in rome just enough to find out that you know he's best buddies with his dad his new adopted dad it's pretty nice as, as an adult to get a new dad and this like oh you're the best dad you know yeah and uh you know you're you're such a good dad you're gonna ask the emperor if i can be free <laughs> i cannot be your slave anymore uh, but, you know, you find out anecdotally that he's uh, a champion chariot racer in the circus, not just any circus, the Roman circus, s- the Circus Maximus, Ooh. that one. <laughs> and I don't mean the Momus album. And so it's, it's an, another uh, bit of uh, telling, not seeing. But I think it's good that they save. Save the chariot race. Yeah. They don't give us a little taste of chariot race before the big one just to establish that he's good at horse stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to run into a, a desperado situation where the end climax does not nearly come close to how good that bar fight is. So, okay, they could shoot their wad. <laughs> they, they, that's one that's risk, basically what I was going to Right. Um, they could shoot their wad too soon, or they could just... I don't know. So I'm getting ahead to the the, the 2016 version. We'll we'll put a we'll put a pin, a, a pin in that. Okay. So now we're back in Judea. So he gets permission to go back. He goes back. Nice little scene. I thought it was a, a nice, nice touch uh, where old dad lets him go. Yeah. Yeah. Back to Judea. Especially because it was like this thing where he, he literally says, "Okay, this is my now adopted son." who is now heir to all my property with me giving him this ring. And then yeah. he goes, yeah. And, and the his... very next scene is, I know you're going to go, and I know I can't stop you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, and that's that's real love, right? I yeah. mean, you know, you not only saved my life, 
but you've since given my life meaning, you know, like you really feel that between them. And now I know you have to leave and it's going to hurt, but I know you have to. Yeah. It's a beautiful, what they, now this is, tell me what you think about this in terms of writing and direction is it should feel weird that he's been doing chariot races this whole time. Not, still not knowing if his mother and sister are dead or alive, right. and if they're alive, what kind of suffering they're going through. And they get us through this period without saying, well, why didn't you leave until now? Like, why didn't you – why wasn't your first act to to right. to hie back to Judea or um, – I mean, you know, he says that he sent servants and, and to, to find them, and he's got the power of this Roman – admiral i guess to uh i don't know if they call them admirals or what he's got a big wig uh resources to go and investigate this but it never feels weird that he's been racing chariots not knowing what's up with his right it was a little weird but at the same time but it makes does it feel weird at the moment or only in retrospect no i think for me it felt weird in the moment but it was as you were gaining the knowledge that because it's in that scene that he adopts him. Like he's not adopted until that scene, right? So, yeah. So, so, the, so what's holding him there before that is servitude. He did not have his own will. Well, I mean, like he was subject to the general. The slave, slave, right? Until Literally a slave. He, until the general adopts him. And as soon as he adopts him, he's a free man with resources. So, his new adopted father, in a way, adopted him knowing that he was going to leave. And that was yeah. the plan. I mean, not, not not the plan, but like it was like, I I I, I love you that much, that I'm going to give you this freedom, and, and be and, and be heir to everything I have, knowing that you're going to leave. And if you never come back, back, it was never meant to be. Right. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to jump too far ahead. The 2016 version bypasses that altogether. There's yes, none of that. He never never goes to Rome. There's no Quintus Arius. No Quintus Arius. He just... Well, there is Quintus Arius because he's Gior Mormont, Lord he... Commander of the Night's Watch. Yeah, but he uh, he gets just gets killed in the in the in the yeah. boat battle, and then and then it, and it was it was a glare. It was really jarring to me because I felt like it was as I mean I mean if you're looking at Ben Hur and going okay, what are modern Arches going to take? Uh, what can we lose? Well, why doesn't he just go back to Judea from here? You know, it's like, that makes sense. Cut it out. But in doing so, you've lost this enormous section of what what true love really is. So I feel like in that, in that, in that, in the agony of like knowing the most important things to you right now, your what, your, your mother and your sister languishing in prison and you're being forced to be in these you know, rich kind of indulgent uh, areas and race chariots for the benefit of other people because you don't, you have, you are a slave. It's, it, it was, it's, it, it's torture. He also, I mean, he owes some gratitude towards the does, guy who yeah. saved his life. You know, these are complicated feelings, but it does. It also changes the power dynamic between Ben-Hur and Masala when he gets back. Yeah. You know, I mean, exist. he comes back as Quintus Arius, the, the, not the junior, the younger. He comes uh, back as Quintus Arius, the younger. He, he, 
he's introduced as that before he sees, wait, Quintus Arius the Younger's Ben Hur. What? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a great moment. And he like, comes in as a citizen and like you, you can't fuck with me the way you you might think you could. Um, you better think twice, son, instead of having to, to sneak back in. So he he comes in with his head held high, as Charlton Heston should. <laughs> So it changes that, and it also changes. Well, we know why he's a skilled charioteer. He's he's legitimately, you know, like I'm a champ of the the top circuit there is. So I'm not scared of racing against any masala, which should make the stakes of that race seem lower. You'd think, right? But this is where I think it really is revealed that this is just an adventure story. You know, if you talk about – you talked about Ben-Hur's arc, there really isn't much of an arc. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's well, it's basically – I mean, a, yeah. there is the very end. Until until we get to – until the very end, it's just an adventure story. Yeah, and the, what marks that into that adventure is seeing Masala trampled and Ben-Hur realizing that, you know, he got his vengeance and it's – But really, now what? But now what? And this is awful. Um, sure, it's like it's kind of over, but it's awful. And then to see Masala not give that up and die trying to still get the upper hand, I think is, is incredibly affecting. And then from then on out, then it's this, how do I maneuver in this world? And all I've got is, is, is rage, some impotent, some not. And then just and then seeing how, you know, what befalls Christ and then how he deals with it. And then that moving him over, and it's like, well, it's, uh, you know, that becomes now, that that's kind of where the, the art kind of takes over. But before that, it's really just him up against impossible odds marked by betrayal. He's not really wrestling with anything internally other than his inability to do what he knows he must do, which is try to get his, his uh, uh, wife, uh, no, wife, uh, mother and sister <laughs> Exonerated. However, the new version, the 2016 version. Wait, I oh, gotta disagree yes, with you though. Uh, uh, let me disagree at that point because sure. now I'm on second thought. I'm disagreeing with what I just said. Uh, on second thought, that's not really true because at the beginning he's he's against rebellion. Yeah. Right. He's he's for um, just outlasting Rome, basically. That right. you know, Jude, Judeans have been enslaved before, and we've we've outlasted. We've outlasted Babylon. We've outlasted Syria. We'll outlast Rome. Um, and then his betrayal and everything that happens turns him so bitter that he is going to raise rebellion, right? And again, it all happens off screen. We just see him stalking in and out of his his old palace. Um, whereas in the 25 version, you actually see him raising an army, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> but yeah, so he is, he is going to turn to violent insurrection until – he learns to uh, to go go with mercy instead, um, and and is isn't the fact that the only reason he, if I'm recalling correctly, isn't the only reason that he takes to the circus. I mean, he's he's headed back to see Masala. I'm getting my my gosh, my mother and my sister. Yeah. And, right, he get, he meets up with the the sheik who right, and the only reason tries to get him to race the horses. Yeah, is is purely this opportunistic. Here, here's a guy who's saying, "Hey, you know what? You could get Masala 
and because in the circus everything's legal there's no laws so Mm -hmm. how about you help me out and by you helping me out you get to kind of quench this revenge thirst and at first he's like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that doesn't he first say i'm gonna do it the right way and go and try to get it back and then after and then after that i'm trying to get them back through basically threatening him (laughs) (laughs) well he wants to learn where they are right his 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 mother and sister yeah so i guess it is interesting revenge isn't his primary motivation he just he just wants to find his family which is you know better it's better it's a better goal to have he is deceived to believe in it I'm not so sure how I feel about this whole moment. The lep, uh, oh yeah, this is tedious. Yeah, this it, is always tedious. It feels tedious. Not that I don't believe that Esther would be conflicted, you know, with being charged with the totally unfair version of we don't want Judah and her to see us like this. Do yeah, not. This is tell the threes them. company portion of the <laughs> of Ben Hur. Yeah. As soon as it started happening, I was like, oh come. No, and I honestly didn't know if they were ever going to come back to it. I felt like they weren't, and I, and I I know things are different now, and attitudes are different. But how how realistic do you feel that the mother and daughter, once freed from the dungeon, were like we we now are lepers? Don't let him know that we are like this. Let his yeah, agony let him remember continue. us as we were, except dead. <laughs> Which, of course, by doing so, fuels him off and like, well, I have no purpose anymore except for revenge. That's the only yeah, thing I that's can right. do. That's right. And then he goes back well, to Well, so, you know, it gives him noble, a more noble motivation to get him into that chariot race, which we all want him to get into, right? So, <laughs> oh, well, he's, you know, he doesn't have his mom and sister to save anymore. So, yeah, he might so as well do it, this. Right? Whereas, right. Whereas. <laughs> Whereas if he was fucking around on chariots instead of looking for his mom and sister, then we'd think he was a bad guy. We'd right. Think he was selfish, you know. So I, the things they do for but it is, judge. but it is, yeah, it is just tedious that we have to I, Esther lie lie to him and tell him that we're dead. And she's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna walk in the room. Um, I just remembered they're dead. Um. <laughs> I've known it for years, but uh, I just decided that I remembered, and um, yeah, sorry, 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 husby, hubby. They're not married yet, are they married yet? Whatever. No, there's no uh, provocation of this moment that would make me reveal that, <laughs> other yeah. than you asking me again. Oh, I just remembered a convincing memory. Um, oh, here's a big difference um, in between 59 and 25. In 59, Simonides, his best friend, slave, father-in-law, he's been tortured on the rack, and so he's lost the use of his legs and has a – was thrown in the dungeons, has lost everything, uh, but got out of the dungeons, and now this uh, big mute guy carries him around. And I am his – he's my legs, and I'm his tongue, right? Well, that's right. He does say that, yeah. And they hide out in the old Her Palace, which is, you know, it's weird that like you'd think the Romans would take it over, yeah, and make use of it. How many how many palaces can there be? Um, but they maybe they leave it boarded up as a as a warning to to other would be tile throwers. <laughs> um, so, 
Um, in the 25 version, Simonides is also tortured, but he could still walk. He's kind of messed up, but he he flees with all, he still controls all the Ben Hur fortune. He travels under a different name and just says he's a merchant and that he's a free man. Hmm. And so there's this uh, a whole thing where he could tell Ben Hur where his mom and sister are, but he would have to reveal. Oh, the Ben Hur has never met Simonides. They're, they're, he's about to go meet him for the first time since he was a little boy. But then that's when the whole business with uh, uh, the the roof tile and the, mm. the 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 governor happens, and so he never actually meets Simonides. So Simonides is controlling all of the the her fortune and posing as a free merchant to his secret shame. And when Ben Hur comes back, Simonides knows where his mother and sister are, but can't tell him without revealing that he's a slave. Ah, see now that's a lot more interesting. Revealing to the world that he's well, a not, slave, and so he, so he, well, yeah, not interesting, so it's, but it, it's more compelling to be like, I, I literally will be putting myself at personal risk if I tell you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's adding drama in different places. You know, it's 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 like the prisoner being strapped to the front of the ship. It's like giving yeah. drama to to a, a a wider set of characters. Yeah. Um, uh, like, so it, like you know, Tropic <laughs> um yes um and i can't say that ben Hur doesn't feel a little, I mean, a little a little overstuffed um uh yeah so the big but the so i wonder which was uh in the novel it feels like the hmm. the 25 version is probably what's in the novel because it feels more novelish to give that much room to yeah that many characters and you would whittle it down for the movie version. But then I guess for the movie, the, the big guy who carries him around is an invention for the movie. Like, why do they bother? Why would you bother to come up with that guy? The big bald mute guy. Yeah. Like he's only in like two or three scenes. He doesn't really have a role to play. It's interesting. I don't know. Huh. Why do people, why do people do, why do directors do the things they do? No, no. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, Charlton Heston comes across the the chariot rehearsal. Guy messes up because he doesn't he hasn't tightened the harness correctly, or something. He's, he's put a, an experienced horse on the edge. That's right. That's and right. He Ben Hur recognizes right off the gate that one is faster or one is stronger, and he put that one on the end. And... That's right. It's in sixteen that it's. He's uh, the harness is too tight or something like that. Guy gets thrown out of the chariot in the 25 version. He gets outright killed. Oh, he dies, dies during the rehearsal. Oh, pretty awesome stunt of the sheik like riding his horse and leaping on to the out of control chariot. Oh, yeah, to get yeah. control of it. That was pretty cool. That was nice little bit of business there. And then, uh, uh, one of my favorite scenes from the movie just because it's like. How did this make the final cut? But I like it that it did. <laughs> is uh, Charlton Heston just like hanging out with horses for a while? Yeah. <laughs> well, that so, like is... I was gonna hang out with horses and does like it does some improv, does some uh, oh, little ad yeah. living with the horses. That's right. Hey, hey, you hey! Know? Don't you go? Yeah. Hey. 
Oh, oh, I see you have a predilection for nibbling sleeves. (laughs) Or whatever it is he says. But you know it's kind of improv, yeah. It feels like a little... Let's just do some stuff with you and the horses. But like that's that's acting, man. That's just like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hang out with horses. Just keep keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Let me <laughs> let me let me talk to these little stallions for a while. But I, I do think that that scene was needed because you needed something to know that he. I mean, that took the place of watching him be a charioteer earlier. I think. Is yeah. You see that he had a. a ability to commune and understand horses and the roles that they were in charity. And you just have him get up there and go, I could do it. And then he does it. He, they had to show that he had some sort of ability. He, he sees them as individuals. Yeah. And that's um, what makes he respects, it special. He respects them and has affection for them and does not whip them. No. Uh, which that's not in any other version of Ben Hur, where yeah. he pointedly does not whip the horses. Um, like, yeah, none yeah. <laughs> in the 25 he's he's whipping those horses lots of dead horses to whip <laughs> yes so we get into the we, we get in now we're in the, the the circus and now here's the big here's what's the movie is known for here's the famous right. bit right and it's like 20 minute long race sequence something like that with a 15 right? minute long combing the <laughs> sand <laughs> sequence before it which honestly and... i really liked <laughs> So you okay? So you never saw Ben Hur, but you had seen the chariot. I had not sequence, seen the, you said. I had not seen the chariot sequence as a whole. I'd only <laughs> seen like snippets of it in like editing compilations of best picture okay. winners. So you just knew it as this is the what this the one thing that Ben Hur is known for. So when you saw Phantom Menace in the pod race, hmm. like did the did the Ben Hur reference register? I guess you? not, but okay. And I didn't think of Phantom Menace when I was watching it this time, but I did think of Greece, <laughs> and and it seemed clear to me because of the, the first, spiky wheel. Did the way it was designed, I suddenly realized, oh, Greece is totally referencing Ben Hur. Like I, I just I thought, never thought of that. I had never. Thought I haven't of, seen Greece since I was a kid. So, but the but looking at I I remember distinctly looking at how they that those spikes. And how it gutted into the thing, and then how it flips off the the the, the, the wheel of of uh, the other guy's car, yeah, crater face's car. It I realize it it looks it's the same type of spike, and I realize oh that's not just a thing or a convention, that's a direct reference. I think it is. Yeah, very good. I totally forgot about that. And again, that spike is unique to the '59 version. Not in oh. any of the other versions. Well, I would. Um, and in fact, I read a little bit of the passage of uh, from the novel. Uh, not only is the spike not in the the novel, apparently, but um, it's Ben Hur who is driving his <laughs> axle point into other people's wheels and wrecking their wheels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, so so the 2016 version didn't have a spike or something like that. No, huh. no. So it was pretty cool. My kids were totally aghast. They were like, you know, they already knew Masala was the bad guy. And they're totally into this movie every step of the way, by the way. Really? Yeah. The parts I thought they would be boring and I like, the good part's coming. And they were like, you know, when we had to stop before <clears throat> we even got to the galley scene because I didn't, I, for, I didn't realize it took that long to get to the galleys. It took a while. So, so I had to stop for the night and put them to bed. 
And I was like, uh, well, the the best, all the best parts are coming. What do you think so far? And like, oh, it's really good. Like they were totally into the drama, just the drama between Ben Hur and Masala. Oh, that's and great. That Masala turned on him and, and and betrayed him. Like they were totally taken up in that. That's great. That's um, that's really that's really cool because we keep thinking kids as only being excited by spectacle or or by stuff happening and. The fact that when they can yeah. really get involved in a in a in the drama of it, that's that's just great. Well, I did this the way um, you know you gave me that book of Larry Miller, the actors, um, a book of his newspaper columns, or maybe their magazine columns. It was a book of his columns. It was a gift you gave me like ten years ago, before I had kids. And one of the columns was about how he got his kids into Abbott and Costello, and. The trick he says in in the book to do, and I did this and it totally works, is you get your kids into bed, you get them ready for bed in the pajamas, brush teeth in bed, you're saying good night, and then you say, "Would you like to watch another half hour of TV?" And of course they say yes, and you say, <laughs> "But I get to pick what it is." Right. <laughs> And they yes, yes, whatever. Any, I'll accept any conditions <laughs> at this point. Of course. So you take them down and you show them Abbott and Costello. You right. show them Laurel and Hardy. You show them the stuff that they wouldn't sit still for. You're like, oh, black and white. Right. And that it is, works. Wow. They will watch anything. So that's how you indoctrinate them. That's how you – well, that's how you train them to try different things. And so you show them slower stuff. You show them – Stuff that they would say was boring other times. And then they learn what they like about that stuff. Oh, Jeremy. You know? Carrie is going to hate me now. <laughs> <laughs> so I will get Dex to bed and they'll say, do you want to watch TV? You can't do it every single night. Oh. It's like a once a month thing. <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes it special. It's that thing is like, I get excitement yeah, wait of till... being staying up when you're not supposed to be yeah wait till it's been a good behavior day but then don't yeah. say it's because of the good behavior you know right I mean? it's just like i'm going to do this do you want to do it too yeah oh yeah. yes <laughs> so anyway uh when they're lining up in the chariots and then they see that masala's got the spike on his wheel they were like oh masala's cheating <laughs> Like they were scandalized. <laughs> it was pretty great. Oh. Okay, so the That's race sweet. starts. Okay, so the pomp and the uh, warm up, the the riding around in formation. They do the the pre lap. You were into that. You were into I, that. Well, I, I was I was into seeing the preparation of it. Like it fascinated me that we were watching it for yeah. that long. And I was and just, the score is pretty great. Yeah, that yeah. that theme. It's a pretty great theme. Yeah. And then the race starts. And this whole sequence for this, you know, so we had sections of this movie that are extremely talky. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's like a painting with two people just like staring into each other's eyes and talking. Mm -hmm. We get a guy talking about starting a rebellion where we never see any of the rebels. <laughs> the rebels. I'll go talk to him. I'll go talk to these people. You never see the people he goes and talks to. You never see the army he's raising. But here we have a 20-minute wordless sequence once mm -hmm. the race starts, right? Right. He's getting, he gets coached up a little bit. 
in in the pits by uh, by his sponsor. But then once the race starts, it's it's wordless uh, all the way, right? Mm. Until the until the yeah. he goes up to until he, <laughs> he take then he takes a you have the whole race, you have a victory lap, then he goes up, and then Pontius Pilate congratulates him, and that's like the first line of dialogue I think for like a good twenty, who knows, thirty minutes. It's a long time. It's a long sequence, right? I guess. I, I it felt like it I went don't know. pretty fast for me. Maybe it's twelve minutes. I don't know. It feels long. It feels long. Well, it's a long twelve minutes is a long time to have a, an action scene that especially one that goes. Let's like just that. say an hour. Let's just say, we'll it's, say an it's an hour. Yeah. We can we yeah. can and it's after the intermission. So it's like Right. It's this is at like two hours and forty five minutes in. Yeah. And there's still another hour to go after the after the, the, <laughs> the chariot scene. But that that chariot race is it's still gangbusters, right? Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's pretty good. I I, I remember, I remember feeling like uh, sad that I wasn't like through the roof for it. But it was impressive. It was just impressive. It, it really is. It still it still is impressive for today. I mean, it's impressive in the sense that you always know where he is, like where right. where his place is in the race. Is that why you said mention the pod scene, pod race? Sorry, I didn't mean to. Well, I mean, it's okay. obvious the the pad race is obviously modeled on it, right? Right. Okay, yeah, um, that makes sense. I can except we have a Greg Proops <laughs> um, <laughs> announcing the pod race uh, <laughs> to tell us things that in 1959 Ben Hur we don't need explained to us because it's all visually explained to you. Right. Um, although there are. My favorite part of the pod race is when uh, he gets the engine fire. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only part of the movie I remember is when he fixes wordlessly a mechanical yeah. issue on his pod. Right. The fire breaks out and he repairs it and you understand exactly how he repaired it. Right. You know? Other than that, I hate the pod race. But except for that moment, it's amazing. I mean, that moment is amazing. I hate a lot of the uh, Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> Good. We should dig more into that. Um, <laughs> Again, I hope that pod race gave that sequence gave uh, studio execs uh, confidence to allow Joss Whedon to have uh, an entire huge air battle sequence of the Avengers, where Iron Man is basically fixing a wing or fixing a rotor <laughs> for a good fifteen minutes. But I, but but the, that's what makes it so exciting is like this is a scene where you've got the one of the more powerful members of the team, you know, literally having to fix a, a an engine rotor just so everyone doesn't die and gets hung up in that while everyone else is yeah. I just I just I, I like that I like that. And yet, that. I I mean, do you think he had him saying, "Let's try spinning"? That always works. <laughs> Yeah, how how is the guy how is the guy that made the Padre sequence where the engine catches fire and he fixes it without words and we know what's going on be the same guy who makes a, a, a space battle where he's like, I know, I'll go left. <laughs> I know, I'll spinning works. Because Ben Hur didn't have a space bay battle to <laughs> copy. I don't know. <laughs> So yeah, very exciting chariot race for sure. Earns, yeah, and that's what earns I love its about place. It. earns its place there's... in in, in the iconic film history. Yeah, yeah, it's got strategy, it's got tactics, and you can like you know what the characters are trying to do, and and it's all conveyed 
through the action. It's like, oh, there's a wreckage there. I'm going to force you into that wreckage. Yeah. And then Ben-Hur jumps over the wreckage. I still find that a very thrilling, you know, and I have to keep pointing out to the kids, you know, this is, there's no no computer effects here. Let's stop yeah. and actually do that. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, and they're like, well, that's all, you know, that's all special. Like they did that with miniatures. It's a, but so he just assumes like, well, it's movie magic. They use like fake horses or something like, no, they're real horses. You can't <laughs> fake horses. You can't fake horses. This is it Westworld. There's no horse faking in movies. <laughs> I taught you too well. When the um, when the galley slave comes up out of the bottom and he's uh, and his arms cut off and you know they obviously got an actor who's an amputee or had a birth defect. I don't know. Um, but you know the kids sound like, oh, that's that's a special effect. They like his arm is hiding behind his back or something. I'm like, no, that's really they found a guy with chopped off arm. We hope they found someone with a chopped up yes. arm. I wouldn't put it past central casting, honestly. <laughs> I hope they didn't hire a method actor. <laughs> okay, so method has come up so much. I, I got to tell the story. Okay. I was auditioning for a film I shot in Austin. Right. You know, I just like, I, it was like 300 actresses. No, I, it was probably, well, 300 actresses applied. I think I'd, I had one role and uh, I think, I think it was like 80 that actually auditioned and um, so you're the you're i'm directing and producing this movie you're holding the audition i'm holding the audition and there was this and and she she wasn't a bad actress but this is for all you for all anyone auditioning out there this take this as a as, as a as a tip she she sat down and it was a dinner the audition was a dinner scene so we just had like a she was at a table and reading opposite the other actor who was at the other side of the table, but there was no props. It was just a, you know, just an audition. And um, she sits down, and we say, okay, whenever you're ready. And then she mimes picking up a sandwich and starts just miming eating the sandwich while she's doing the audition. And I let her do it, and the whole time she's miming the dinner. And so after it was over, I said, that was great. Thanks. Um, Actually, can we do it again and not, don't, don't bother with, miming the 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 meal and she let's just let's just let's just do the 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 scene and she goes oh i no i'm i'm method i can't i have to and i go oh (laughs) well actually it's kind of distracting me from your performance so if i just kind of want to see your performance because obviously you won't be miming it on this day (laughs) so if you just so let's just do it again and you just do the we just don't, don't worry about the dinner don't just it's not a dinner now it's okay and she and then we started and she just picked that sandwich up again <laughs> started nibbling on it doing the whole thing and i went okay yeah uh, there's no no way now they're getting this part and so and i'm usually very sympathetic to actors but it was this thing where I, you go one i know no she doesn't take direction <laughs> right uh and two she doesn't know what method means <laughs> <laughs> because they're like no no if you were really method you would have brought a meal into the audition and set it up and ate something okay <laughs> let's pretend you're portraying an actor auditioning <laughs> for this part and you can take direction <laughs> that's your character and I, again I, 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 I know I may, I'm making sport of her right now and that's not cool um 
I, I would so do humiliated. But at the same time, it was it's a it's a good lesson to say like, look, this is not this is part of the audition isn't just your performance. It's to see how can we work together. You know, and if and, and it's part of it also you wondering if you can work with me because I could be a complete asshole too, and so you also have to know if that's going to be someone you can talk you jives with you which I know is a little bit harder to hear when you're desperate to try to get anything, any work, but it's true. And also know that the director is also usually desperate to get work. <laughs> now, is there, is there, after Masala goes down in the chariot race? Yeah. There's more chariot race, right? Because he's run over a, a couple of times. I think, I think that's the last lap, isn't it? Is it because he's not run over by Ben-Hur. He's run over by another racer. Right. In a pretty grisly, like I was, I think the only two stunts that I rewatched over was the fire being stuck in the guy's face <laughs> on the boat, and then Masala's run over because it's like I'm like I kept going, is that a real guy? It's pretty it's, convincing. It's whatever it is, it's convincing and, and almost disturbing. <laughs> uh, it's 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 pretty horrific, uh, and I did like. Like the way they, if I'm not, if I'm recalling it correctly, I did like the way they framed like Masala being conscious and seeing how Ben Hur is being led off to be victorious while he's being, you know, carried mm -hmm. off as, uh, uh, you know, broken. I thought that was pretty, pretty well done. Yeah, um, he's humiliated completely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and I found his last scene with Judah Ben Hur when she when he's waiting for Ben Hur to show up, like he won't let them treat him. Until Ben Hur shows up and sees what he's done to him, and then he dies. Mm -hmm. he, he dies angry and vengeful, and and still trying to get the upper hand. I thought it was a really powerful scene, and really, you know, helped hammer home the fact that this wasn't a victorious thing for Ben Hur. Really, he won, but he does not feel like the victor. Yeah, and you know, it ends up being the classic foil scene where. If Ben-Hur is going to complete his arc by learning mercy and forgiveness and let go, here's Masala to the end, not giving up on his, uh, you know, it's, it's I've already betrayed you, and now I'm going to hit you for it the rest of my life <laughs> and be on the grave, right? Right. I'm, I'm seeing this all the way through, no matter what. Even if I lose my leg, even if I lose my life. Yeah. Oh, twist the knife one last time yeah to see like that's what that gets you and like i don't want any part of that it really sets up that and, and it also sets up why he's I, I i thought it was a really cool scene later on when um and and i think speaks to my feelings on uh, how organized religion was portrayed in that how ben Hur literally rejects going to the sermon on the mount sermon which on is the not mount. very organized no no it's not, to well, be honest that's true. but i mean but, but but that's something that's associated with our modern day christianity of like it's like it's one of the the, the benchmarks of, of one of the, the foundations yeah. of it so like esther's trying to convince him to go and he doesn't he just walks right off by it and then mm -hmm. uh, it is it, it was neat in a way and then he's really uh, I, I thought I, I unexpected from a, a, a film to to do that I thought it seemed like a good place to bring up uh, the way uh, Jesus is depicted in the film great point in the 59 where you only now we could stop here we could stop here and go to sleep <laughs> you look like you need it 
<laughs> you look like you need it too. I'm not too bad, but I know it's three o'clock in the morning where you're at. So. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Because we probably should stop here because we've got a whole other movie to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, so... I think talking about how Jesus is depicted is a really important thing because, I mean, he's. Uh, I, I thought it was strange initially to have a movie that began with 20 minutes of his birth and then to... I, I didn't think it was comical, but I mean, to not, to not show his face... To, to make a big deal about we're not showing his face uh, all the way through to his crucifixion. But then when I saw him played by, you know, Paulo from Lost, um, who was fine, I thought, was completely <sighs> fine, um, uh, I realized this felt weirder. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, if we did see him, why aren't we following Jesus? <laughs> Why are we messing with Judah and her? Why aren't we just following Jesus? Right. Because right. And, I, and it made me it made me also think about how Jesus was. Um, we don't see Jesus in our lives. You know, if you're a Christian, unless well, you maybe visions, you're not eating the same potato chips yeah. I am. <laughs> but like, I kind of felt like it was interesting to see like you to fa feel his presence, but not be allowed to see him. You know, I thought that was uh, the more I thought about it as an intellectual artistic choice, the more that made sense. Although mm. watching it, it was kind of it, it, it sometimes was like, OK, here we go again, not seeing his face. <laughs> but it felt much better than than seeing him as a, you know, the Nick Fury cameo of uh, of Ben-Hur. Well, um, let's uh, what if we took our intermission here? Okay. And uh, our audience can look at uh, the finger of God and the finger of Adam almost touching. Mm. Um, oh, that's right. And then uh, you and I will sleep and uh, through the magic of editing, uh, only moments later, come back. And uh, yeah, maybe we can talk more about how Jesus was depicted um, and the different choices that were made for the stage version and the uh, 1925 silent version. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Till then. The God Cynicron demands interruption. So, they say they're going on a intermission. But how long do you think this intermission actually was for them? Five minutes? Fifteen minutes? Maybe a couple of days? No. Five months passed. That's right. Five whole months passed, and then they decide to finish their little chat. Oh, I mean, this is coming from one of those guys that thought it was Jackie Chan's first strike. They had both the German ball from Operation, Co I mean, uh, Armor of the Gods 2. It was Armor of the Gods 2, yes. No, it was. I'm sure it was Armor. I'm going to look it up. I'm, I know I'm right. What? Just cancel game. No, don't re reset the defaults. I don't want teaching login. Keychain login cannot be. I, I don't. You don't need my keychain. God, mom, this thing is acting up again. All right. Um.
I guess I'll just try to look around this window. Thank you, Chapman. First strike. It's not. Okay, let's see. Uh, Operation Condor. Armor of the God 2. 1991. I see. I don't need a keychain. I don't. Oh, okay, I'm going reset. No. There we go. Safari not responding. Force quit. Goddamn right. So anyway, I was right. It was Jackie Chan's first strike. And, um... So anyway, here's their... The rest of their conversation five months later. I don't know why you're listening to this. Cinecron out. Test one, two, test one, two. I think I'm getting you in the uh, garage band. I heard a weird ting. Uh, yeah, here I am. I'm gonna try to talk like this. Okay. Does that okay? That sounds, that sounds fine. I'm gonna some input a little bit. Okie doke. Let's see. You wanna bring us back? Sure. Chapel ceiling. We're staring at it. It's the mm -hmm. end of the intermission. <laughs> Have y'all got yourselves a nice big tall tub of poppycorn and a soda pop to wash it down? Please, ladies and gentlemen, open your candies. The lights are blinking. Our discussion of Ben Hur's all of them resumes. Now you may after hear. A many months long intermission. Uh, we are officially in the at the end of November, full of turkey and stuffing, and uh, so it's been many year uh, many months since we actually seen either of these <laughs> movies that we're going to discuss now, or continue in to discuss. In great detail. In great detail. So, buckle up. Uh, we said we have we we had yet to discuss the depiction of Jesus in. The, this uh, movie, the 1954 Ben-Hur. Well, actually, how, the, how I don't know where you're going to edit it, Wade. But we <laughs> ended off with me saying, I'm too tired to continue. But when we do continue, <laughs> let's pick it up with Jesus, the depictions of Jesus in the movies, and you go on to discuss the depictions of Jesus in the movies for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that that's, That so is true. I hope you can remember all those great points you made and restate them now. I, or figure out how to edit them back in. I, I have I I can't I, I don't have the time to re, to look at that right now. <laughs> so how about then? Well, since I went on for five minutes, maybe you should go on for five minutes about how your <clears throat> depiction of Jesus went. Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, I'm not going to talk take. about my depiction of Jesus. I'm going to talk about uh, right. the. <laughs> The film's uh, version. So, uh, if you must. so we started way back at the beginning of uh, episode one of our Ben Hur discussion um, <laughs> with the uh, with the novel by uh, Lou Wallace. Am I getting that name right? Um, where he 
uh, became very sensitive about how he was depicting Jesus as a fictional character. And he, he thought that this was going to be an issue with his audiences. And so he, he retreated from his original plan of writing a historical fiction of the life of Jesus and uh, decided to invent this character, Ben-Hur, whose life would intertwine with that of Jesus. Um, so, uh, so I don't know how he writes about Jesus when he appears in the book, but that same kind of sensitivity um, uh, carries forward in the first few film versions of the story. So mm -hmm. in so in, in we're more familiar with the Charlton Heston where we only ever see the back of Jesus's head, right? Um, or maybe sometimes his feet, I think. Um, but we never see his face or hear his voice, right? right. And uh, and there was a similar treatment in the um, earlier silent version. Um, where uh, you only ever see Jesus's arm, <laughs> not even the back of his head, yeah. uh, which is very strange. Um, uh, it's, it's always like got a spotlight on it. <clears throat> it's always coming out from the side of the frame or from like behind a bush. And it's just like coming into view. So when like uh, when Ben-Hur's at the well, when he's being led to the prison galley, and uh, he's being denied water by the soldiers. The same scene is in the in the film, uh, in the silent film. Uh, Jesus' hand just comes in from out of the right edge of the frame and picks up the water. And it's just like a disembodied arm that reaches in and, and, is it, and offers a, is it, a cup of water. Is it clear that that's Jesus or is it just, hey, some arm yeah, is doing Yeah, because it. it's like glowing. There's oh, okay. Like, you know, there's no in the... Um, <laughs> Well, in the version I saw, the score comes up, and it's it's there's not much uh, not much doubt. Um, okay. I think the the musical theme is established in the opening uh, Magi uh, visit of the, the three wise men. Oh, musical cues. Um, I think, and so that musical theme probably pops up again. I can't be inventing that, right? That's probably. I mean, that's what that's what you would do, right? I yeah. Oh, and in the uh, stage production, um, Jesus was just pro was um, the one with the horses charging right at the audience on the conveyor belt. <laughs> oh, God, that's right. Instead <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, of having an actor portray Jesus, they just had a, a spotlight, like a light shining on the stage, like Tinkerbell. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, um, uh, but the 2016 version makes a different choice—a very different choice. Yeah. So, um, so we keep teasing the 2016, but I think we're gonna try to handle it all in in one go. Well, that's very if gracious. We can ever finish up the Charles and Heston version. Well, that's very gracious, but honestly, I did not uh, abide that rule. I couldn't separate the two. Uh, when talking about it last time. So if memory serves, I've already talked at length about uh, 2016 because my admiration for the 59 version did not supersede my um, feelings about the 2016 version. <laughs> so um, they make a very different choice. So in the 59 version, um, I don't know how big a fan you are of JC, but what do you know? <laughs> 
I, other than the you know the, the camera cool angles <laughs> he's pretty righteous pretty righteous. um <laughs> other than the <laughs> the camera angles that they choose and the, and the blocking mm-hmm. um and the fact that you don't hear his voice like um what did you think of the way he's portrayed as a like can you say a character as a i mean i guess technically it's a character well, no, I no in the in the fifty nine version, I do not think he's so much a character, which, in a way, is like I think was a smart choice because if you're making the story about Ben Hur, someone being affected by, cry by someone else, you do want to not normally see what that other person's like. However, when it's Christ, then it might just be too big. It might be like, well, yeah, why aren't we following Christ? Why, why are we messing with this other guy? So yeah. in, in a way, uh, and also, as I said, I think I said previously, we, the people on earth uh, in real life who are uh, impacted and who are um, affected by the teachings of Christ and by Christ himself, they don't ever get to see him. But that's part of the faith. That's part of the thing. It's like you don't, it's like it's that wonderful Douglas Adams moment in Hitchhikers where God says, without faith, I am nothing. And then man says, oh, but the Babelfish just proves that you exist. So therefore, we don't need faith. God says, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then vanishes in a pup of logic. <laughs> and then man goes on to prove black is white and gets killed at the next zebra crossing. <laughs> so... um uh, if of all the choices, I think even though it is somewhat gimmicky, and every time Christ appears in the movie, you're like, "Oh, here's the back of his head again," because we're not going to see his face. It's a stronger choice, in my opinion, seeing how the others panned out, um, because it's 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 reverential. It's that important, and it puts the focus on Ben Hur's yeah. reaction right. to it. Right. I think that's right. Um, him. I mean, you know I mean, I think Jesus is treated sort of like a. <laughs> It's strange to say, but treated kind of like a natural phenomenon. He's both yeah. he's both like yeah. depicted as um, like just a supremely good person who just is like going around doing stuff that a person <laughs> might do, but just like doing like the nicest things <laughs> um, and just like radiating like love and uh, kindness and 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 empathy. Um, but he's kind of treated as like a force of, um, maybe not a force of nature, but a force of supernature. Right. So like, if there was like a tornado, whipping around, like showering food and love and forgiveness, <laughs> on people. <laughs> it's he's kind of he's kind of treated the same way that tornado might be treated. Right. Yeah, and that would be a wonderful thing. I would I would much rather have Hurricane Jesus. Than Harvey or Irma or Katrina. I mean, we we might someday. They might pronounce it Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, I'm totally. That's be it. I I welcome Hurricane <laughs> Jesus or, or Hurricane <laughs> Jesus. This. So there's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Which we don't get to hear, which is right. too bad, because like Sermon on the Mount is pretty awesome. Yeah, but we hear ask me. we hear a little bit about it in Life of Brian, so it's covered, I think. If you can. <laughs> I think they must have anticipated that. Right. <laughs> you know. But yeah, Sermon on the Mount is pretty awesome. Like, uh, everyone's gonna... heard it. Everyone's, you know, got it right. around, you know. 
just if you're gonna get one takeaway from from the Bible, you see the John three sixteen signs being held up. I would go with the the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you only got like, if you want to read the Bible, you only got like fifteen minutes. <laughs> like you're on a commute. <laughs> And you got a whole long reading yeah. list, and you just no don't think you're gonna get back to the Bible. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Let's really like you can you can uh, you can get away with just that. It's one, it's it's number one on the greatest hits chart on the greatest hits of G, of the Bible for a reason. You know, <laughs> I'd say so. But but we don't get to hear uh, uh, Charlton Heston fans don't get to hear the Sermon on the Mount because Charlton Heston has been her. Says I'm not sticking around for this. I uh, I got too much anger in my heart right now. I'm too angry. Which I think is really but, interesting and really cool. And it isn't until it's it's that is thrust in his face again, or rather what he goes through that he suddenly is. Some people have to be rubbed in it in their uh, mess, <laughs> like a dog, <laughs> you know, to uh, uh, before they are willing to see it. He's got to bottom out. Right, he's got a bottom he's like out. A, he's like a junkie on revenge right now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I was just teaching my son about revenge, actually. It was really interesting to have the child say, what's revenge? And I go, I get the opportunity to say what revenge is. Mm. Did you tell him it's a dish best served cold? No, I, I told him that nothing feels better. <laughs> <laughs> and to give In it your all. Passion, that's the time to do it. <laughs> You get your own, kid. That's why we have our president. There's no point in eating your enemy's heart if it's not still beating. <laughs> it's just not the same. <laughs> I really want to share this. It's the wrong time to do it. Um, but my brother and, and his wife had written a... I'm probably going to cut this out. As a, as a long time, years and years ago, when when like the 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 little chicken uh, chicken soup of the soul were at the at the register books, the impulse buys sure. that you buy, mm -hmm. there was like a hundred one ways to bring more happiness into your life, to bring more peace into your life, to bring one of those things. Um, my brother and his wife were writing one called hundred and one ways to bring more blasphemy into your life." And the one that I remember more than anything is <laughs> is. This thing it says, why why does Jesus prefer fish over bread? And then it says in quotes and in red, like there's no Jesus and stuff's always written in the Bible. It says, Because bread doesn't writhe in pain whilst I eat it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's a way to bring more blasphemy in your life for sure. I think I'll cut it's that okay out. It's okay to eat fish because yeah. they don't have any feelings. No, that's right. Kurt Cobain wrote that. I bet he's singing a different tune now. And wherever the shotgun face people go. Okay. You're, you said you're cutting this yeah. out. So. <laughs> I'll, cut the, I'll cut this out. It's out. Shotgun face people don't feel pain. Ernest Hemingway wrote that. <laughs> Eat your uh, enemy's heart while it's still beating. Right. So I guess it's not revenge. Well, it's revenge against the whole Roman Empire at this point that he wants, because Masala's right. already. Yeah, has, Masala's died at this point, right? So he's seen. Yes. He's seen what 
someone who dies with revenge in their heart can do. So then he's like, I guess Ben-Hur is he, I forget, is he on like a tear for just the whole concept of the Roman Empire at that point? He's, is he, is he on his way to the leper colony? What's he do? I, I forget what his like immediate agenda is at this point. They're dragging someone to see Jesus. Like Esther convince, convinces him. Are they taking their mother and sister to see Jesus? That's right. They're taking his mother and that sister. Comes, that, that's at the passion. Uh, at the at the at the passion. That's oh, we're talking about the sermon. That's him right. Carrying the cross. Right. Um, but he's like all enraged, and he's trying to raise a rebellion. And uh, what's his what's his slave wife's name? Esther. Uh, Esther's right. Um, yeah, there's this new guy walking around preaching love and forgiveness. You should come and hear what he's got to say. And he's like, I'm not ready for love and forgiveness, not for two more scenes. That <laughs> um, <laughs> sounds like if Steve Roman this... was playing Judah Ben Hur. <laughs> and then, uh, and then he, I, okay, so he goes to the leper colony, another scene of note. He makes a few. Does he make like a number of trips to the leper colony? Yeah, and they're all really they, weird. They're all really uncomfortable. And it and he goes through this long, this long uh, process of trying to find his his mom and sis in the leper colony. Oh right. And like and doesn't doesn't mind waking up every other leper. <laughs> in the colony and he doesn't like call out oh mom oh sis you know it's been her instead he's got to go up to every body he sees and like roll them over and peer into their their eyes and then and then lick his hands (laughs) yeah skulking around this cave um and then he finds them and he like forces them to hug it out Right. And you know, I mean, under these bandages, their skin's falling off. So maybe, <laughs> maybe a warm embrace isn't the most comforting thing, right? Uh, at that moment, but I mean, I, uh... I, I think we talked about this before. I was always, I was always a little weirded, not weirded out, but it was hard for me to relate to the idea uh, that the, the the mother and sister were like, we're lepers now, and I don't want. I mean, I understand. I want you to remember who we are. We're we're doomed. There's nothing you can do. So why would I put my son through that pain, except yeah. for the fact that he's completely tormented by the fact that he couldn't doesn't know what happened. And so, like, yeah. but, but I, 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 on some level, I get that. But it, I don't know. It didn't. I, I, it didn't. Maybe, maybe I've just never been in that position. Obviously, but I just didn't get that. Um, it didn't land for me. Maybe they just knew, like, I know my son, he's such a go-getter, he'll never stay out of the leper colony. Right. I want he'll come him here, to he'll, remember me he'll with come to the col- whole face. <laughs> he'll come to the colony and wake everybody up. Like, all <laughs> the time. So, he's so loud. <laughs> he doesn't really modulate when he talks. Very. I'm actually, I'm actually looking for a little respite, if you don't mind me saying, like... I'm being completely honest, the prison was actually, I learned a lot there. It was kind of nice not having him around. 
<laughs> and his clenched jaw always clenching. Oh, speaking of the um, prison, um, my oldest son told me later after we recorded that that when uh, they they go to um, peek into the prison, like what the those two people we haven't uh, nobody's seen them in years, and then they the prisoner goes inside and is like freaks out, <laughs> sees them and says lepers, and like my son thought he said leopards, <laughs> leopard cats. His reaction was pretty, pretty. Either way, it would <laughs> leopards. And like, and I didn't know if they turned into leopards or if the, they fed them to leopards. Or <laughs> again, Douglas Adams, beware mm. the leopard. I don't know that one. Oh, that's um uh, when uh, uh, Arthur has to get the permit um or he has to like check the paperwork uh for the permit to demolish his home he followed the instructions oh, but it was in an abandoned basement that's right behind a door with the sign that said beware the leopard, beware the leopard. <laughs> that's right i forgot oh oh it's so funny and there's a there's a podcast there's a hitchhiker's Oh, podcast is. called beware the leopard oh wow Not that i've listened to it but i came across that i'll have to name and i said i get that reference <laughs> <laughs> i've been listening to i mean it's fun i'm surprised it was, it was lost for a while on me because i didn't uh grew up not only listening to the audiobooks and reading the books and but my uh my dad and my brother and i just loved um, the BBC, the radio play version of it, which I think preceded the book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And so, I believe so too. yeah. And so that is one of my favorite things of all time. Just that, that recording with that cast. <sighs> yeah. We listened to that on a road trip, um, year before last. Yeah. It's good. It's a good road trip CD for sure. Yeah, and it uh, goes into well into the second book. Like yeah. it's, uh, covers a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. It ends with I think Rooster uh, in like six episodes. Yeah, I think uh, it ends with like Rooster. No, Arthur. I can't remember now. <coughs> and it was weird. I was listening to the tertiary phase, the Checkers radio drama tertiary phase, where um, they had continued doing it. I think after uh, Douglas Adams had died. And I'm oh, listening yeah? to it going because there's the, the there's the quandary, the, there's like four different phases they call it. But I remember the tertiary phase is going through, and there's more stories. And this one voice comes up. It's like, yeah, I know. Uh, I don't think I ought to be doing. I'm like, who is that voice? That's Christian Slater. That's Christian <laughs> Slater. And in the credits, sure enough, it was Christian Slater was part of this radio drama, of oh. Hitchhikers. Would have been nice if it were Jack Nicholson. Doing his Christian Slater <laughs> impression. <laughs> you know, trying to sound young and hip. Right. <laughs> Jack Nicholson in Pump Up Volume. But I know that's what he's been doing. It's been clear forever, obviously, that Slater's just is doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation most of the time. Right. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, okay, 
So he gets his mom and sister out of the leper colony. Mm-hmm. Um, Esther convinces him it... to what? Go ahead. I, I just said Esther. Think convinces... I was going to say the same thing you're going to say. Well, well, then you go ahead and say it. No, you were already starting to say it, and we're then wasting you stopped. Valuable time. Needlessly. This is why this is three hours long. Um, no, uh, we Esther convinces him to take to take the two to see Jesus to be healed. I don't think Ben-Hur is totally on board, but he doesn't know what else to do. And then when why, they get there... Why is the hem of his garment so powerful? Who, <laughs> who is his tailor? And then uh, they get there and they find they're just too late that he is being marched uh, the aisle for crucifixion. Uh, and Judah Ben-Hur is so struck by him, the, his countenance and his vision and his stoicism and what he's enduring that he, he stay here lepers <laughs> i'm gonna go check this out <laughs> and uh he just is captivated by watching him and then he he then in turn gives offers water to jesus as he had done to him many years ago correct yeah that he does and uh the water's knocked away he doesn't get any right yeah, he doesn't i don't think he, he got any, any no no. And what happens oh, to Ben Hur? I forget. Jesus Christ! <laughs> get any water? What happens to? Uh... In the name of Jesus, let <laughs> Jesus have water. Oh, I was just saying, what happens to Ben Hur for doing so? It gets, it gets the water oh, knocked out of the hand, and then he doesn't really get punished for doing this, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think he's just, just pushed back. You know. How can this man who's done no one any harm be punished so and yet hold no wrath against his tormentors? Something like that. Something like that. Right? So, so that's then, where that's where he's moved by, you know, like how he sees this guy who's forgiving his enemies while they're while they're persecuting him. And this is a pretty this is one of the better, if not the best. Depictions on film I've seen of someone having transformative emotional experience through someone else. Which is a lot, you know, what you're doing in <laughs> while watching the darn film. But like, mm-hmm. like um, usually you're, when you film, you're watching someone take action or have action taken against them. And then they, are, they have this moment where it, 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 the profundity of it all changes them. But in this one, it's like he's watching vicariously just like we are. Like we're watching vicariously someone vicariously at watching someone else. And then, but it's so intense and so profoundly moving that it, it, it transforms him. Movie, I'd probably watch Ben-Hur again. It's not one I would jump at the chance to. That was really um, effective, I thought. And, and also, as we'll talk about in the next video, most screenwriting professors would say not advisable. Hmm. They would say, make Ben Hur, don't make Ben Hur a spectator in the climax of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what, um, as we'll get into later, that's going to be my main beef and, and, and confusion with um, Ben Hur 2016. Yeah, because where Ben Hur has an arc, it's to stop pursuing his yeah. vengeance, it's just right. to give it up. You know, that is his, that is his uh, character turning point is to decide not to take action. Right. Yeah. Right. 
and to where he felt um, I felt the sword fall from my hand. Yeah, you know, he says. Yeah, that, that was a great line. Yeah, really. Yeah, really needed because like like if you watch someone be killed in the most gruesome way possible and crucifixion, the most suffering and most this thing, especially not only is horrific and cruel, but it's also unwarranted. Or unwarranted. Not only is it unwarranted, but it's also unjust because he didn't do anything. <laughs> you know. That should fill you with anger to take action, but to be even more—I mean, that way the movie just did really well. It, this is a moment where we would all—we're all—we would all be angry. We'd all be um, moved to to war. But what Jesus is t- teaching you is to let that go, and you'll be better. We'll all be better for it if you—you'll—you'll you'll be more at peace, and things will not to let villains rule but rather to let that anger go and um it was it was it was it's very powerful angry christians please watch ben-hur the child's invested version <laughs> yes exactly oh next time you're gonna protest someone's funeral or <laughs> or tell someone uh... do they have to change season's greetings to merry christmas if you're gonna, yeah, watch Ben Hur. All right, so we got to the end of that movie, right? We did. I mean, anything else we want to say about we, it? Well, other than the fact that we spent the least amount of time on the most important part, I'd say yeah, we got to the end. <laughs> okay, so we've now come to the end of. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm sure I had to think there possibly could have been more. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our in our episode for Ben Hur. 1959 starring Chuck Heston. Um, stay tuned for part two in which we will discuss the uh, 2016 version, which I believe stars Jack Houston. Is that right? Yeah, Jack Houston uh, as Judah Ben-Hur in Ben-Hur. That was 2016. Not to be confused with Ben-Hur 2049. <laughs> <laughs> Where can we where can we be found on all the things? Things, Siggy. Uh, we can be found on Twitter, Facebook. You watched it wrong. It's the name of the podcast. It's the name of the page on those things. Except on Twitter, it's a letter U instead of a number U. And then uh, you can also email us on email at you watched it wrong, spelled properly wrong at happypanic.net. And if you thought Ben-Hur was a big wuss for not charging through the Roman soldiers and trying to get Jesus off that cross, you watched it wrong. Hey, no pun. No pun.